0: Hey there, Dave here, and before we get started with today's episode, I would like to say that this episode is supported by listeners over on Patreon. Some personal heroes of mine like Chris Nelson, the Top 3 Podcast Crew, Zulgeek, Chris Copleen, Eric Guess, Rick Firestone, Nick Ficori, Jill, Jeff, formerly Jerf, Kieran, Soccer, ZNA, Cupcake, Kyle, Christian S, Matt aka Stormageddon, JD, Doug Leaf, Jason Emery, Brian Skirsha, Randall, Jake Martin, Jenny E, and many more have all chosen to show their support for the show by going to patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson, kicking a few bucks a month my way, and they're getting some cool treats in return, like they get to vote in polls for what games I do on the show. Be on the lookout for a new poll on Patreon in the next couple of days. Once again, if you would like to support that way, that's patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson. Any and all support is always appreciated. And with that being said, let's get on to the show. Hello, everybody. My name is Dave Jackson, and you're listening to Tales from the Backlog. This is a video games review podcast where each week, normally, we take games out of the backlog, play it, and discuss. Today, we're not doing that. We've got a roundtable discussion episode, given a uh, little break from the backlog work here. Uh, So I have three wonderful guests with me today to talk about how we approach evaluating, analyzing older games. So without any further ado, let's introduce the guests. Uh, First up, the host of Pixel Project Radio, Rick Firestone. Rick, welcome back. Hey, Dave. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Thanks for having me.
1: Really excited to talk about some retro games.
0: Of course. Yeah. Past uh, episodes that Rick has been on, many of them, uh, so many that I had to go through and look and I probably forgot some. Uh, But just to name a few, we talked about Yakuza Like a Dragon together, Disco Elysium way back when. Uh, 13 sentinels aegis rim Catherine, final fantasy 16 lots of stuff rick is a regular on the show we're happy to have you back man uh we're also joined today uh coming back after just a couple of months uh one of the hosts of fine time podcast andre welcome back
2: hello there good to be there it's your boy dre sorry i don't have a loud brassy hip-hop beat you can play one behind me right now if you want (laughs) but to give the full effect but Uh uh-huh yep
0: yeah uh If uh, you were around just a couple months ago, you would have heard us talk about Killer7 in episode 100 of the podcast. Uh, We're in a weird time here. We're recording this in between when that episode comes out, but we
2: all know it's there. We're recording this in the
0: nether week. (laughs) In the nether week, yeah. Well, good to have you back, man. Uh, We have talked about this topic offline uh, together, so I'm happy to, uh, to bring you on to pontificate here and we're also joined by see i, I stole a retro hangover word there because i knew it was coming up chris Copleen, one of the co-hosts of retro hangover is also here with us welcome back chris
3: thanks for having me again dave and i just want you to know i'm not a wonderful guest today i'm a grumpy old man who's here to yell at a cloud and tell everyone <laughs> how much better things were when i was a kid
0: okay <laughs> well <laughs> we'll see where that goes uh, long-time listeners will recognize Chris from a couple of past episodes of the show, including Spec Ops The Line and Signalis, two uh, games that tested our spoiler wall policy on the main episodes. So good to have the three of you here. Today, again, we're going to discuss our approach when playing, analyzing, and critiquing retro games, and all four of us do this to certain extents. Chris has a retro dedicated podcast. So Chris is doing this all the time. Uh, Rick and Andre both play a lot of retro games, uh, both cover them on your shows, just depending on what's coming up on that week. Um, and then I, you know, obviously done some retro games on this podcast and I have the bonus tales from the way backlog uh, show over on Patreon with, that is dedicated to me uh, going back and playing older games. Uh, so I wanted to talk about our approach when we do this. There's a lot of times when analyzing and discussing retro games uh, where I come across something that I don't really like a design philosophy or a decision to about a mechanic or something like that. And when I talk to people about it, I hear this refrain kind of come up and people say, well, that was just the style at the time. And it kind of feels like hand-waving to me to just say, well, that's how it was. Moving on. This conversation's over now. I wanted to kind of dig into that a little bit more. Talk about how we approach these situations when we are analyzing these games for our podcasts and in our own enjoyment, too, even if it's it's not for podcasting in particular. Are we able to put on our academic cap and uh, just roll with those old-school design philosophies and decisions? Uh, or do they negatively impact our experiences? Or maybe the opposite, maybe they enhance it. So we're going to dig into this. But first, I think people need to get to know you guys as gamers, retro gamers, and kind of get some opening thoughts on the topic here. So uh, Chris, I'll kick to you first as the host of a dedicated retro gaming show, Tell everybody about like the types of games that you normally play and where you stand just at the beginning of this episode on this uh, approach to playing and analyzing these older games.
3: So as as one could imagine, as someone that is part of a dedicated retro gaming podcast that, yeah, my my taste is pretty much grounded within older video games. Most of the games I own and play nowadays are for older systems. I'm talking about Back to the NES. I don't find myself playing the NES too much, but I play tons of PlayStation. Uh, I've just been playing some N64 recently. Uh, Sega Master System games sometimes come up. Sega Saturn is a console I go back to very consistently. And yeah, sometimes some PlayStation 2 games as well. I will play more modern games, but even when I do, they tend to be retro-inspired. Uh, the most recent modern game I played was, for example, Sea of Stars, which came out in 2023. But that game is pretty much its entire basis is in being a recreation of the 16-bit JRPG experience. Mm-hmm. So when I'm when I'm looking to play video games, I'm looking for something that reminds me of what it was like to play games when I was a kid. These are the games I typically tend to enjoy. But I will say that yes, I do have a tendency to play more modern games from time to time, but not often at all. So when I think to your question about how to analyze these games, how to analyze older games in, in contemporary times, uh, I think there's there's a two-pronged approach to do it. And I'll try to be as brief as possible here, uh, so I can kick it over to to Rick and Dre, as well as yourself. But the, the way I view it is is there's two approaches. One, you can either review it as a game that stands the test of the time today, or or review it as how it compared to his contemporaries, and you can kind of do a little bit of both, right? Uh, each will take a different mindset when going into the game itself, because I think that other things have to be considered. You can say, okay, what was, what have happened? What would happen if this game was released today on Steam, or what would happen if this game was released on you know PS five or the Xbox or the Switch? Or you can be like, okay, this game was released for the NES. How does this game? hold up when you consider all the obstacles that it had to go through and i'm just playing it straight i think that the the latter is something i i tend to do more just because of the nature of what i do as a podcaster but it's not like the the former can be completely dismissed because if someone has not played an older game if someone has not experienced these older games or grew up with those, it's going to be much harder for them to put that mindset into playing these older games, especially when a lot of the things that I take in consideration could be kind of, um, kind of, uh, uh, you know, guided by nostalgia, for for lack of a better lack of a better term. So, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the approach I I take to it. It can be a lot more nuanced than that, but I am trying to be as brief as I can so I can <laughs> kick it over to the other guests here.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, We'll and we'll definitely dig into that stuff as we go on. Uh, for now, I'll kick it over to Rick uh, for the same stuff. What kind of um, games do you normally play? And as you come in, just real top-level thoughts on the topic here today.
1: Sure thing. So I, much like you, Dave, I, I think my show reflects most of my tastes Um, I think what I what I say on the show is non-current I'm not often playing brand new releases uh, with a few exceptions here and there uh, like Final Fantasy 16 and we saw how that turned out (laughs) but um, no you know I I, oh yeah but I I'm not often right on the ball whenever things release I'm generally playing games from the past whether it's a year ago or you know uh, 15 years ago uh, I am a big uh, fan of retro gaming I, I was big into emulation before I started retro collecting uh, which I've been doing for about a year now thanks to the guidance of, of Chris actually and, and Bill from uh, the well couple podcasts 3DO experience and uh, <laughs> gaming and collecting so that's been a real treat this year to explore some of those libraries that I had as a kid and then uh, some that passed me up like the, the Dreamcast and the PSP for example. So I'm I'm big into everything. Not super huge into staying on the latest trends, but uh, otherwise I like a lot of things. Um, surface level thoughts just about this topic that we're talking about today. Um, I kind of have two different approaches, or approaches isn't the right word. I have I have two different rules that I follow whenever I'm thinking about this kind of thing. Um, one is pretty similar to what Chris was saying, in that you've got to be careful. And uh, considerate and deliberate whenever you are viewing things through 2023 or, I guess, 2024 lens lenses. All that I mean by that is that uh, you, you need to be, uh, I think it's important to be considerate of what, was, what were the trends of the time, what was the general landscape and design philosophies of the time, and etc. Uh, for example, it wouldn't be fair for me to review Resident Evil uh, and say, well, you can't save everywhere, this is bullshit right? That's a, that's 2024 lens in a bad way. That's something that I just think should be handled with care. And the second thing that I try to abide by is the notion of, uh, taste versus criticism. You know, I, I'm somebody that really, really believes that critics and reviewers should be subjective, not fully objective. I think subjectivity is super important for an interesting critic. But what, what I mean is, It's okay to dislike something and still say that something is good, right? Um, The password system is something that we will bring up, I'm sure. Uh, Older games that I've played this year, like Tiny Tank and Gex Enter the Gecko and Sub-Zero Mythologies, they all use a password system to save data. And these days, it's like, yeah, that sucks. I hate the password system. I really do. But for the time... It was really good. It was a great way to, to save progress before we had internal memory, external memory with memory cards and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of a surface level take that I, uh, that, I, that, I, that I think about whenever I'm looking into retro games.
0: All right. And to you, Andre, same questions. Well, as for
2: how I play games today, I just like to see what's next. Really, I'm, I like to stay modern. I love seeing what's out there. Oh, this game is coming up. I love technology. So like, I was one of those kids where like, once the new system came out, Get the hell out of here with your NES. I have a Super <laughs> Nintendo now. I am never like I didn't play those like late or um late early 90s NES games so they came out on like Nintendo Switch online because once August 91 hit and I had that Super Nintendo, that's it. <laughs> you know, like I was that kind of person. I'm still that way. Once PS5 came out, I am not like get out of here. PS4, please. You know, <laughs> so I, I love to keep I love to keep really current with technology at the same time I'm 41 years old. My first system was an NES, so like i I've grown up with you know since the infancy, maybe, and you know I've also played Atari and stuff that's a little before my time too, of course. So I played a lot of this stuff, and I grew up with it with old games and old game philosophies that we don't have anymore. And I think the thing is for me, I, yeah i I guess you could say I played retro stuff, but for me, it's about exploring. I don't want to go back and play you know something I've played a million times I want to play stuff I haven't played that's why I love stuff like mini consoles like a TurboGrafx 16 mini Sega Genesis mini etc because there's stuff on there that I've never played and some stuff I've never heard of you know I'm not going there to play Sonic 2 again or something <laughs> I just think that's like really boring so I don't I I try not to do that um as so that's the kind of gamer I am I guess and As far as just a surface level view of the topic, um, I try to meet the game where it's at in time. I think that's the only fair thing to do. I almost never compare. I'm probably the strongest, like, hardest line with this about, like, comparing it to modern day. I almost never do that because I just don't really think. Like, quite frankly, I just don't think it's that interesting. I'd rather just stay in the moments like, okay, this game at the time, in this time, I try to put myself there as much as I can. For instance, I recently played Hydlide, the original PC 88 version of Hydlide. Um, on Switch, they've been releasing a bunch of PC 88 games and, you know, I've, I've been playing them and I play this game for the first time. This game is an incredible historical artifact. You can see Zelda in here. You can see East in here, especially. It's crazy. Is it a good game? I almost don't care. You know, by like 2024 20, standards, that's almost, that's mm. like not the point of me playing it. So that's my approach. You know, when something's so far removed from anything that has anything to do with today. I don't even try it. Like I, when I beat games, I I make a tweet or now skeet about it on Blue Sky, <laughs> and like you know, I gave it a, I gave Highlight a B minus. I felt silly even giving it a grade. Like it just doesn't even matter, you know. Mm-hmm. So that that's my approach to playing games so far in the past.
0: All right, and uh for myself here, before we get in, uh, like Rick said, I, I think if you look at the games I cover on Tales from the Backlog no secret, this, you know, this isn't my job or anything. So the games that are on the show are the games that I'm playing and the games that I want to play. So if you go back and look at the games that are on there, there are some that are like, I replayed it because I wanted to do a podcast about it. But most of them are just stuff I wanted to play, I play them, and then I do the podcast. So the contents of the show are pretty reflective of the kinds of games I play. So I do play a lot of new releases, but I wouldn't say that that's like my wheelhouse per se. I kind of joke that the sweet spot for this podcast and for me is 2016 to 2021, like that kind of stuff, stuff I can get for free or for five bucks or something like that. (laughs) And then I'll play a bunch of the new releases each year, stuff that I'm really interested in. And even though like that is where I I land on a lot of like the stuff I want to play these days. It's not because I didn't grow up playing games when I was a kid. I grew up with a Game Gear and a Game Boy. Uh, I played, I didn't have a Super Nintendo, but that was part of my childhood over at friends' houses and stuff. Um, But I don't really consider myself to be a big fan of a lot of uh, retro games. And if I kind of think about the games I'm going back and playing, other than the ones I do for Tales from the Way backlog, uh, because that's like a personal challenge type of thing. Outside of JRPGs, I don't really like a lot of older games like that that I play. I don't like a lot of old platformers. I don't like uh, a lot of stuff, point-and-click adventures, stuff like that. I just don't have the best time with them. JRPGs seem like the uh, the easiest for me to get on with, and that's because I, I know what's up. I know what to expect in all of those. Uh, so my approach to this type of thing is, like, I'm generally able to, like, Academically understand decisions and philosophies of the time, but I do not really enjoy them most of the time uh, if they cause frustration we'll say it's, this isn't a blanket thing about old games in general, um, but I am the kind of person who like on one hand, I can say yes, this was a decision made by the restrictions or the design philosophies of the time, but that does not translate into me enjoying them any. More than I would uh, a modern game that made the same decisions, we'll say. Uh, so um, it's not really additive to understand that for me personally, and I have a really hard time putting myself in that purely academic frame of mind. Uh, I'm I'm very much like in a, a an experiential type of person when I'm playing stuff like that. So this episode, and we'll get into the uh, discussion here. This was. Really inspired, I think, by two games that I played for the first time in 2023, okay? Uh, The first one was uh, Rocket Knight Adventures, which was covered in the uh, Retro Hangover Review Crew, the monthly games club in Chris's Retro Hangover Discord server. Uh, I played that game for the first time. I had never heard of it before it was the game of the month in there. And uh, I fucking hated that game. I could not. I gave it the lowest score of anybody in the uh, the review crew. I couldn't stand it. And then the other one, kind of like this, was uh, Super Mario Brothers Three. Played that for the first time. Could not stand that game. And they both have the same type of old philosophy that caused me to not enjoy them. Which is, um, in Rocket Knight Adventures, it's the fact that uh, you. Basically have no checkpoints. If you get a game over, you have to start the entire game over again. And when that happened to me, after a very long stretch of boss fights with no checkpoints, and it sent me back to the beginning, I was like, well, I'm not playing any more of this. That's that's horseshit. Um, And then Super Mario Brothers 3 felt like a very, very unfriendly, uh, very unfriendly, uncharacteristically unfriendly for the main Mario platformers. As when it comes to uh, checkpointing, giving you power ups and stuff like that. Both of these games to me feel like they are from a philosophy of our game is three hours long. We need to make sure it's not three hours long in actuality. You know what I mean? So, like that type of thing is what inspired this topic and then some conversations with you guys. And These are good examples for me personally, because I am able to like hear someone say they had to make some of these games this way because they had to last you a long time because they're really fucking expensive. And that knowledge does absolutely nothing for me while I'm playing the game. So that's why they're the good examples here. And I'll kick to you guys. All of us play games like this. What do we think?
2: Can I can I directly address Mario three, though? Like, because <laughs> sure. it's my favorite game of all time, like straight okay. up. So yeah. I want to say this about it. What you're saying about uncharacteristically, like, unfair, that's the Lost Levels. That's like Japanese Mario 2. You know what I mean? That, to me, is uncharacteristically Nintendo, like, by my standards. Okay, that's that's an asshole game. Right.
0: right so when I, so, what, to clarify i meant because i had just played i played super mario world and then i played mario 3 back to back uh so comparing those i have played mario 1 and 2 mario brothers 1 and 2 uh throughout my life too and mm-hmm. uh yeah 3 just felt kind of like more fuck you than those other games i just mentioned mm-hmm.
2: So they did that. And of course, you just said this does nothing for you. And it shouldn't, by the way. I'm I'm saying that because it's like, you know, you're playing the game, you're experiencing it, how you how you feel about it. But the reason why I love Mario three is because they expressly designed it for experts. It's the third Mario game. You know how to play Mario by now, presumably. (laughs) So they're like, let's make these levels that are just and I think like Mario three to me is like the perfect difficulty. For me, hmm. I um I don't know if you guys know any of you guys know this. I'm like a Super Mario Maker Two freak. I maxed yeah, out the yeah. levels in that game. <laughs> I made a hundred levels in Mario Maker Two. Okay, like forty three of them were Mario Three style. Like I just I I just <laughs> think the game is the absolute best. And my point is like. The, with the checkpoints, the reason why I – and I listened to your podcast on this, and I don't know if that's the first time I listened to Tales of the Backlog, but I was, like, yelling at my phone, like, what the fuck is wrong <laughs> with you? And, but, like, uh, I mean, you know, but I was just, like, the checkpoint thing in that game I truly do not understand because, like, bro, those levels are often, like, 90 seconds long. Or even two minutes. And if they are longer than that, they're slow and they're actually not that hard. The reason why they don't have checkpoints is because they're short. Do you – like do you really want a checkpoint? OK, I made it through like 30 seconds of this level. I need a flag. And like really? I, that's the part I, I truly cannot like compute with you here.
0: The reason why I am complaining about checkpoints is because I did want checkpoints because those level, those 30 seconds are really fucking difficult. And I would like for the game to acknowledge that I did those 30 seconds and not make me do them over and over and over again. We'll also admit freely before I pass it on, uh, to someone else that I'm terrible at Mario games. I'm very Hmm. bad at them. The only one that I would consider myself good at is uh mario land 2 on the game boy and that game is very easy compared to the rest of uh like the console mario games
3: so until it's not
0: (laughs) until (laughs) wario's (laughs) castle
3: yeah that's not that bad i want to i want to jump in here and i I think i'm in the middle here i am a well-known super mario brothers 3 hater i will admit i do ham it up quite a bit (laughs) i don't really hate it but since i don't like aspects about it people like oh you don't like it and I'm just like, yeah, sure, I'll just go with that. That's a lot more fun. And I'm going to try to avoid this being a, a Super Mario Brothers 3 podcast here. But <laughs> uh, some things I do want to address in terms of its actual gameplay. If you look back at platformers of the time when Mario 3 was coming out, and I know this is a philosophy you can give or take, Mario, Mario 3 in terms of the way it controls, the way it behaves, the things that it did in terms of advancing the platformer in and of itself, Are are quite revolutionary. It's one of the best games in terms of pure gameplay, top to bottom. I I won't question that. The things that I have a problem with, there's not even so much the checkpoints, because I think Dre is right. Those those levels are short, but the thing that I have an issue with is the lack of a save function. And Nintendo knew this. Nintendo put in the manual itself, apologizing to the player that there is no save functionality. And this is something that uh, didn't even exist in Doki Doki Panic. Now, I know Super Mario Bros. 2, when it came over to the United States, is a little bit different, but because Doki Doki Panic came on a Famine-to-Com disk it had a save function. Metroid had a save function. Kid Icarus had a save function. Castlevania had a save function. All these games had save functions because they were on floppy disks. Super Mario Bros. 3 didn't have this, and by this time, the battery backup was well-established. I understand that when cost factors are put into the equation, that adding a battery at the time was... was somewhat expensive, but they had the password system. So when you're looking at a game at the time it was released compared to other games that came out around that time in a retrospective manner, and saying even from a modern taste perspective, the fact that if you're playing Mario Brothers 3 on modern hardware and it can't save, I say is borderline inexcusable because that game is, as Dave said, damn near three hours long for anyone that is just getting into it. I don't think that's appropriate. And usually the counter argument to that is that, well, there's warp whistles. Well, the only way you're going to know how to find the warp whistles is if you're good at Super Mario Brothers 3 and you know where to go <laughs> and what to do. So it, it doesn't really reward the player for playing the actual game, which is supposed to be one of the best games of all time, but yet you're discouraged from actually playing it as the way it was intended to be played. I, I think that's that's a critical argument against it. But putting that more into perspective as an overall game in and of itself, there's, 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 that's the biggest issue is that it doesn't really respect the player's time. It didn't back then. And it kind of rode on its reputation, which is as a Mario game, which is fantastic. It is a fantastic game that in terms of just pure playability, but you also have to think I, this was at the time Mario was almost strictly aimed towards children and didn't even consider the adult. And if I was to give this to my kid nowadays, uh, and, and say, play it, you know, a lot more distractions, a lot more lack of connectivity and all that stuff like that. They probably wouldn't be able to complete it in one sit through, uh, at least playing all the levels, get the warp whistles. Sure. But I, I can't talk to anybody who casually plays super Mario brothers three that says they love it and say, yeah, I, I got through it and played every single level. And I think that's that's something that you can look back and knock on games from that era when they do things like that. And I think that's completely fair game. Uh
1: I, I don't know that I can speak much to the Super Mario Bros. 3 aspect, uh, as I've never actually played it, and I, I don't have the knowledge that Dre and Chris do of that era of of games. Um I, I did want to ask for a bit of clarification from you, Dave, and from Dre, because I think you agreed. Um, when you hear that argument, that is, uh, well, that's just, that was the divine, des- design philosophy at the time, or that was the limitations of the time, and you said that does nothing for you. Um, could you just clarify a bit what you meant by that?
0: Yeah, for for me personally, like when I hear someone say that, the knowledge that it was like a deliberate decision that they made, you know, the decision to not have a save function at all. Or the decision to not put checkpoints in the levels or let you go an entire level without getting a mushroom, which is shit that happens in Mario 3. When I hear that they're doing these things because of the style at the time, I can say, okay, I I see. But that does not help me at all when I'm playing the game. I don't go through the level and say, aha, yes, they did this because they want me to have a harder time at this level. And then... It's going to take me longer to complete the game. Stuff like that. Knowing that does not help me whatsoever. As a player, you mean? As a player. Yeah, absolutely. As a player, absolutely. Like from me experiencing the game, it, it actually makes it worse for me because I start thinking about like, why couldn't you just put a checkpoint in the middle of that level with the sun? Like, what would it have hurt to put a checkpoint there? I get through a gauntlet. Why not? The other Mario games have checkpoints. Um, when I'm like looking at the game critically, though, and I think about like the type of challenge that they're trying to set up, it also doesn't help me there in this specific example. It doesn't help me to hear a rationale for why it's that way. The rationale that Dre gave that it's Mario 3, so it should be harder than Mario 2. That really doesn't do a lot for me personally. And I think there's a lot of people who, if you're not Mario experts that's not going to do a lot for you either. And that philosophy when designing a game that way is harder to appreciate. And frankly, I think that if that is true, then that's kind of shitty. And that's just the perspective that I come from. Because I guess I am very, very focused in like, I can think about these things as they were like, placed in the past but at the end of the day i am a person in 2024 playing it through these eyes
1: i can tell dre is ready to pounce
0: (laughs)
2: no 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 no. i just i just personally forgot to say the other half of that because the, the, the while the designers did say they made super mario 3 for experts they also said on the flip side they made super mario world for beginners because it was a new system and that's why that game is a lot easier and it takes after mario 3 but it's like i don't want to say the easy version of mario 3 but i think you understand what i'm saying because you've played both games they have a very different design philosophy and super mario world has checkpoints because those levels are long super mario World. or Super Mario World, Super Mario Brothers. Three levels are short, so they don't have them. Just despite the difficulty, I'm just talking about the length of the yeah. of the level.
3: So that yeah. that I I should have said that as well. And and to just kind of expound on what Dre was kind of saying here in terms of design philosophy, and if you look at the lineage of Mario, it stems from the arcades. So when you go back to Donkey Kong, and then you go to Mario Brothers, those are arcade games. And what the NES or Famicom was specifically meant to do was meant to bring those games, arcade games, and be able to play them on a home console. Super Mario Brothers was really the, you know, Nintendo's first real attempt at making a game that was more just this consoleized game for console gamers, something that was unique from the arcades, but it still had all those arcade roots. So it had addictive, challenging gameplay because that is also something that was very much valued back in the 80s among gamers. If you go back and watch commercials, it's this is the, this is where all the challenging games are played on our system. This is where you're going to have a challenging experience. And then, like, you get to Mario Brothers 2 in Japan, and that game was released. Like less than a year later after the original Super Mario Brothers, and this is actually something commonplace you see in Japan. You see it with another game called Super Load Runner. Uh, Load Runner is a game that uh, it, it, it's hard to describe. You're, you're walking across lines and people fall in there, and Bobberman's there and all stuff like yeah. that. But they came out with the game like Super load runner that was specifically designed for experts like super Mario brothers two was. So the mentality was we're just coming out of the arcades. We're finally learning what it's like to make games for a console. And so super Mario brothers three was all those lessons that they learned in between 1986 and 1988. And they're like, okay, now we know how to make games for a console. The legend of Zelda showed us this, the Famicom disc system and its ability to go up 200, go up to 256 kilobytes. I think, showed us that we can make bigger games that aren't necessarily made for a single sit-down experience. So that's why the difficulty for Super Mario Bros. is scaled back and is more approachable than Super Mario Bros. 2 is because Nintendo at this time was learning how to make games specifically for the consoleized experiences that mentality came out of the arcades and into mm-hmm. something new. And so that with, when you approach it with that mentality, you can look at the NES and the evolution and have a better appreciation for what each game was trying to accomplish. That's what I think. I think I agree.
0: Rick, were you
1: halfway into an opinion there? Um, kind of. I, I was just... Um, the reason that I asked in the first place is because it the point that I was trying to, to make salient was that... Um, I think it's different to look at a decision made on a game by game basis versus a decision um, or excuse me, versus trends as a whole at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, It's one thing to say, well, they chose to do this with this game because whatever versus, well, this is just how all of these games are. Um, It's looking at the, the, the trends as a whole is, is the thing that I look at and say, I can understand why you wouldn't like that as a gamer now in 2024, um, playing it in the hands. But academically, I think, or on a conceptual level, I think it would be worth it to say or ask yourself, um, you know, is it fair to criticize this given that that's just where design philosophy was at the time? Right. Um, I'm not sure that that's what you were going after, though, whenever you said that? It sounded like they were Mario-specific choices.
0: Well, some of the examples that I wrote down here are emblematic of different trends throughout gaming history, like the Mario and the Rocket Knight uh, examples were both just kind of like... One of the things that I've realized about myself um, from playing the retro games that I play is that I really rarely get down with a lives and game over system anymore and like that's a personal taste thing but then within that like that's a trend that's a it was a an old philosophy games don't really do that anymore even mario doesn't do that shit anymore uh, in a lot of the games that you have they should (laughs) (laughs) so um it's it's looking at like this this trend where like I can't really go and say like this game sucks or this is a bad game because it has lives and game overs. That would be a really unfair and dumb thing for me to say. But I can look at like specific examples, like I said, with Rocket Knight, where they throw a fucking gauntlet at you. And if you get a game over, you go to the beginning because they don't have permanent checkpoints in that game or in Mario three, where I've already talked about issues I had that are like more specific Examples of a greater trend, if that makes sense. And so like, I can definitely take a step back, view it, see what it was, see the reasoning behind it. I can hear all the reasoning behind it. Uh, Chris and Dre have already taught me a lot about Mario 3 tonight. That doesn't make me appreciate the choices they made any more than I did last time I tried to play it. Mm Mm-hmm. Another example. So like the, the arcade philosophy got brought up and, uh, me and Dre have talked about this a little bit and Dre, you wrote it in the notes. So, uh, you wrote down that there is a modern expectation, uh, from the player that you should be able to finish a game. And I would mm-hmm. like for you to, uh, expand upon that. Cause I think that's, uh, right in line with that arcadey philosophy.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, games like Pac-Man or Dig Dug or whatever don't have endings, right? Like, I mean, you can play to a level, you know, a billion or whatever. Like, you just play until you lose. That's one thing. But then there's just games where I don't know. I don't think – I mean, Mario Brothers – Super Mario Brothers, rather – Shit, we got an NES for my fourth birthday, so it'd be May 86. I couldn't beat that game when I was four years old. I just didn't have the dexterity (laughs) or, like, whatever, right? I kind of beat it. It took me a couple years to do it, but – there was no expectation of me beating the game. I think the first like game I ever beat was maybe like Metroid, I think. It's the first game I remember beating. I was 6 or 7 years old and that's kind of daunting, right? Everyone, remember, you know, how like it's it's maze-like. Yeah, how do you find your way around there? I just played it enough until I found everything and it took forever because I was a kid. But I did it, right? But there was no expectation of me doing that. I wasn't playing it to be like, I have to see the end. I want to see the end. I want to be, get past this part. If I could, I could. If I couldn't, I couldn't. You know? And that's all mm-hmm. there is to it. Now that, now Metroid isn't a game with like, it's a password game. So at least it is in America. So you don't have like lives or continues. It's not that kind of game. But a game right. that does. Okay, man, like Blaster Master, and that's another example that Chris was talking about of games that are just too fucking long, that don't have a save system. And then in America, they made our continues limited. The original Meta Fight has unlimited continues. <laughs> so like it's insane for us, and there's no way as a kid – I think I played it a couple years ago, not specifically for fine time, but I remember talking about it on the show and being like – I can't believe like they did that to us, you know? And um anyway, my point of this, my point of saying all that is it was fine back then. There was, if you could, if you were good enough and that's, that's fine. If you weren't, if uh, hopefully find a cheat code and a Nintendo power or something and and like go at it, <laughs> that was the thing. But now games are expressly designed to be beaten. So it's like completely different. And so you can't even really have that kind of difficulty anymore. Some would argue you can with like a Souls game or whatever, but that I I don't think so. But yeah, I just think that it's not artificial or whatever to have like lives or continues or whatnot. That is literally the game in the video game, Dave.
0: You know, when you brought up this, this topic of uh, a game where it doesn't feel like they expect people to get all the way to the end. I thought of zombies ate my neighbors, which I just recently played. Uh, That's a game that is really difficult and there are a million fucking levels in that Mm -hmm. game. Uh, So I got the, Feeling playing it that it came from an arcade style mindset where there's like we're just going to put a bunch of levels in you'll play, you'll see how far you get you're never going to get to the end unless like you said you you find the cheats to skip to whatever level you want to skip to uh Chris password. you recently did that on uh on retro hangover um did you get that same feeling from that game
3: yes <laughs> i mean i don't i don't know what else to say there it's 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 very much it very much feels like an arcade game. There's, and just like arcade games, like the the best way to get good at it, or really any game from back in the like eight bit era, more particularly, is memorization and just knowing where to go, what to grab, what items to have, and that comes from a lot of increased mm-hmm. replays, and that that was the expectation, and in, in a little bit, I'll, I'll get into why. I don't want to hog the mic here because I I want to see what Rick has to say about some of the stuff. And then I have a, a game in particular that I think stands up for a lot of these arguments.
0: So I guess like the question with this topic is like, if you played a game like this, where it's very clear that they designed it in a way where they didn't expect people to get to the end or to be able to easily get to the end. Uh, does that bother you when you're playing it? Because I, it kind of bothered me when I was playing Zombies Ate My Neighbors because I liked seeing new levels and there are a bunch of levels that I was just never going to see. I'm,
1: you know, I'm not sure that I would say it bothers me. I, I'm thinking about this. Um, I, I'm wondering if this idea of games being designed to be beaten, if we can accept that premise for a moment, uh, mm-hmm. whether or not it's true, let's just accept it. I'm wondering if that doesn't come from this new notion of uh you know, getting your money's worth quote unquote out of a game uh, you know, I've paid sixty dollars and I want sixty dollars worth of of an experience which which is something that i I find ridiculous uh wholesale i I don't mm-hmm. think that's i I just don't think that argument holds up in any way um so i I'm wondering part of me is wondering if it evolved out of that. I'm not sure, but um as far as a a game that just has level levels after levels after levels. You know, thinking of something like Miss Pac Man or Donkey Kong from the arcade, where you know, you keep going until you hit the death screen, and then you the, the game just doesn't know what to do programming wise. Mm-hmm. Which I, I suppose is maybe a different case if we're talking about an arcade game like that, but I, I don't think it really bothers me, no, um, because I know that there's always something new that I could see.
0: I think that that notion of getting your money's worth was also a reason why games were so fucking hard back in the day, too. Because they were more expensive, and if you look at how much content there is in those games, it's a lot less than what there are in modern games. Of course, there's technology behind that too, but um, I think that people getting their money's worth from games has always been a concern for some people, for sure.
1: I, I don't disagree. I think that's exactly right. Um, what I was thinking more so was we have the the games are more curated these days especially story games like last of us god of war shit like that Mm -hmm. but even games that don't have a forefront story and that are focused on gameplay like death's door for example i i I think they're a little more curated as a holistic experience or the devs wanted you to experience this in this particular way than something like super mario brothers 3 for example not saying that they didn't have an experience for the player in mind, I, I just think it's maybe a little more curated these days, and that's why people want to quote get their money's worth, whereas before they wanted to quote, "get their money's worth, because like you said, Dave, games were stupid, expensive, there weren't as many games, people didn't have the income, the disposable income that we that we have today, um well, kind of, but any <laughs> anyways <laughs> um so so that game had to last, mm-hmm. right um. I don't know. I'm not sure that I'm, I'm connecting these dots uh, particularly well, but I maybe, maybe you guys can, can help with that.
0: Definitely. Like the, the, I understand like the, the bridge between somebody wanting to complete the game, see all the content, you know, and and then like, if somebody equates that with uh, feeling satisfied with their purchase, you know, like I am personally someone I beat almost every game that I play Within reason, unless I just like really can't stand it, then I'll put it down. Uh, Even before I did a podcast that you know I was talking about the full experience, I still was this way. I am the type of person who wants to beat every game I play, and so I kind of get the arcade side of things where it's like, yeah, you're not going to beat Pac Man. What are you, an idiot? You're you're just going to play until it's over, (laughs) but for a platformer or something like that. Like the notion that they're going to sell a Mario game and not care whether people got to the end or not. That's, that's something different. I think.
3: I, I actually agree with you here, Dave, because I reject the notion that companies didn't expect you or I'll say I'll, I, whatever companies fucking thing. Okay. The developers of the game didn't expect you to complete the game. If the game has an ending and that game is hard coded into the ending the eventual desire of the developer, the creator of that content, would be that you are able to see it, or else why would they create it? So I'm going to get to the game I want to talk to in a little bit, but it, it, there's a couple things I think we need to to remember in, in a modern perspective looking back at that time, and we've kind of talked about a couple of them. One of which is that games were more expensive. This is true. Games were like $40, $50 if you wanted an NES cartridge in 19... like. 88 money, which is something like probably $5,000 at this point. But uh, just kidding, but it's like $200, $200 ish, $180, somewhere in that ballpark, right? That's a a lot of money even today. If I was going to go and drop $180, people are freaking out like, oh, Spider Man 3 might cost $150. I know this kind of dates this game, but uh, dates this episode. But, uh, that's, that's kind of the hot topic right now. So oh, Sony's going to release three installments and have this game cost $150. And that was standard back then. The second thing is games were expensive to make. Cartridges weren't cheap. Memory wasn't cheap. Uh, remember when I mentioned a little bit uh, back about the, the size of games, Ma- the Super Mario Brothers that came out on the NES in 1985 used all, but I think one kilobyte of information on that, on that disk, maybe all of that information. And that was 128 kilobytes. That's that's all they had to work with, and so th- that's the reason they made the Famicom disk system is because it would be cheaper to make and they would have more memory. But the reason we didn't get over get it, didn't get it over here is because they had the EMMC card, I think that's what it was called, and that ex- allowed it to expand memory on the actual card itself. But you're still talking about battery saves that also that battery would cost money going onto these cartridges. So they had a limited amount of space and they had to do the most amount that they could with that. And one answer is, well, why don't you make an RPG then? Well, because people generally don't like (laughs) RPGs. So what you have to do, especially in America, so what you have to do is you have to find a way to get someone to buy a $140 game for your child because at the time the game was meant for children that would appeal to a child and won't have them throwing a fit wanting another game. So you still have to have that somewhat arcade mentality to make the first couple levels easy, and get them addicted to it to give them confidence while raising the difficulty so it keeps them coming back for more. So they, they have the confidence to come back. So when you're saying, oh, these this live system, these continue systems, I don't like that, I can understand that. But the thing was is that I'm spending a lot of money on a game. I'm probably not going to spend a, a lot of money on another game if this doesn't work out for me because that's a ton of money. I need to make a quality product to the point where someone feels confident enough that by the time they've invested enough time in that they come back to buy another one, they feel confident that that's also is going to be well-invested time. On top of that, again, these games were for kids. So when we're talking about, oh, this is obtuse, uh, a lot of the ways to figure things out are obscure, like in The Legend of Zelda. These games, specifically Zelda, were designed with the mindset that you could go to school and talk to your classmates about how to defeat them and how to get after them. A lot of us now are like, well, I don't know. The game doesn't tell me. Well, because it was also a social thing. It was a social, I wouldn't say experiment, just a a social uh, connection. And you also have to think that also benefits any developer at that time, because if a bunch of kids are talking about a game, other kids are going to go talk about that game to be part of that in-group. So that makes a game like Zelda very, very intelligently designed from that aspect. So when you put all these things together, And you take out this this very connected world we have now with all these guides and all all this information at the touch of your fingertips and all these safe states like that had to be the way these games were done. The game wanted you to become an expert at it. It wanted you to become skilled at it. And I think the mentality that a lot of people have nowadays, just because games are so cheap and readily available and the competition is different because the oversaturation of the market, where back then there wasn't so much of a competition, but the price barrier to entry was so much higher that people had to be so choosing what they get. Nowadays, it's like beat our game, go to the next one. Back then it was buy our game stay with it and be confident that the next time we release a game with our name on it, you're going to buy it. And these these the mentality you have to go into it when approaching these games and why they're made that way has to be different. Uh, you said it the
2: best. I actually was thinking about Zelda. That's the first game I thought of. When we brought up this when Dave brought up this topic to us, because I had the exact experience that you just talked about. I went to school and I said to my friends, oh, you shoot the you shoot the crab in the eye with the arrow. Oh, you know, you can kill Ganon if you do this. Oh, if you bomb this, go up three squares from the beginning and then go over to the left (laughs) and then bomb this wall. And there's like rupees Mm -hmm. in there. We told each other all this shit on the playground. I mean, because I'm old enough to have had that experience when the game was out. You know, but removed from all of that, I completely get it where someone's like, "I have no idea where the entrance to you know level five or six is. I was supposed to push this gravestone in the grave, like, how the hell was I supposed to know that?" Well, the reality is you weren't supposed to know that. You were supposed to find that out. And a lot of cynical people say, Oh, that's how they sell strategy guides or something like that. That's not, that wasn't really much of a thing back then. I mean, they existed, but that, that's just like, I don't buy that, uh, cynical shit, but that was the nineties. I mean, yeah, that was the nineties. <laughs> that was definitely the nineties, but like, yeah, I totally, I'm glad you said that because that was one of my main points. I, and Zelda is a perfect example of that. Also, I thought it was really funny. It was before, maybe a little bit before the Switch came out. Um, there was an interview with Miyamoto and Aonuma, Zelda producer, and the interviewer asked them, how do you feel about the original Legend of Zelda today? And Miyamoto was like, yeah, you know, I still think it's a lot of fun. And Aonuma thought for a couple seconds and he just threw up his hands like, I can't, I can't do it. I can't play it. <laughs> you know, and it just shows that even the guy who works on it is like, okay,
3: I, I, I can't, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I totally get both sides. It certainly requires a different mentality going into it, especially blind, if you don't have guides or anything like that. And I think, like you said, Dark Souls isn't that much like that. And I'd also like to counter when I was playing through Dark Souls in 2023, one of the things I saw in our community, and Dave saw this, I'm sure Rick saw this, is when I got really frustrated and I started ranting in the server about how much of a pain in the ass the game was, what's the first thing everyone did? (laughs) They gave me advice on how to overcome the obstacle. Mm-hmm. They said, "Why don't you try this? Why don't you going with? Why don't you try going with this build? Why don't you try leveling up these stats?" It was the same mindset that was present in the Legend of Zelda and all these other games back in the eighties and early nineties mm-hmm. that people would go to each other. That's what is in Dark Souls in like the Dark Souls series right now. Is you have all these things all over the floor that you can these sigils that you can touch and they say hey this is coming up hey this boss is hard hey try, try doing this and some say sometimes it's a <laughs> troll but sometimes your friends would lie and troll to you like uh, the, the, the EGM stuff they're like oh yeah if you unlock Shang Long by just if you do this code uh, in Street Fighter 2 you can get a secret character it was bullshit, but that was the that was the playground attitude. And mm-hmm. all those things are still present in Dark Souls. So if you take that example, what Dark Souls is doing, I think this was intentional on Dark Souls part from what I remember reading. They wanted to bring that kind of feeling back that existed in that time that games were designed to do, but we lost over time because we just became so connected over the internet with all these guides and just this 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 oversaturation of information.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm glad that Zelda got brought up because I did not want this podcast to just turn into people taking turns bashing different retro games or different, uh, mentalities or anything like that. Um, I played the legend of Zelda, the first one for the first time, maybe two years ago. And, uh, I, I didn't beat it, but I had a good time playing it. Like the, the things that you guys describe, did not bother me uh, at all. Maybe it's because I do like more modern games that use those same philosophies. Breath of the Wild is very similar in a lot of ways to uh the original Legend of Zelda. So that particular, that's a good example of something where like I can I guess I can more easily put myself back in the shoes of someone playing it because games are still doing stuff like that today. Games that I really like whereas other examples that we talked about, like, think of the difficult platformers of today. They all have extremely generous checkpointing and stuff like that. Uh, whereas, like, so it's a little bit more difficult for me to, like, put myself in that place in time. You know, Chris, you and I are playing through Shovel Knight right now for the uh, this month's retro hangover uh, game of the month for the review mm-hmm. crew. And uh, Shovel Knight is a tough platformer. That is very, very friendly in its mechanics, and so the existence of games that have changed things to be friendlier while still maintaining a level of challenge makes it harder for me. In that specific Mario three, or if we want to go super analogous to Shovel Knight, something like um, Zelda two or Mega Man or something like that. Those, those are not well. Zelda two is a very unfriendly game, very unfriendly. Uh, so. Again, I can sit back and like see that perspective from the past, but it makes me it makes it harder for me to put myself in those shoes fully. but I was able to do that for Zelda. Zelda One, that is. So I'm glad we could bring that up uh, as an example. Rick, have you played Zelda One before? or uh, you know, any other game recently that would rely on this type of playground knowledge and like not put that in the game itself?
1: Um, no, I've I've not played Zelda One, actually. And as as far as that, I mean recently not really. I mean Pokemon is the easiest example to draw from in our age demographic. I mean, easily. That's something that I never really thought about outside of Pokemon, to be quite honest, but I mean it makes sense.
0: Yeah, and your (laughs) your friends would oh everyone was spreading those rumors about using strength to push that truck out of the way and all that, (laughs) that bullshit. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess the expectation that people were going to do some of that work for you, not that's a cynical way to say like, they're going to do the work for you. Like the expectation that people are going to talk with each other and have more of a shared experience. It's harder to pull off today
1: experience. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Harder to pull off today when I can just go type into Google uh, how the fuck do I beat the Capra demon as a sorcerer? And then I would get a full Fextra life page detailing exactly how to do it. Like, I don't have to, I don't have to go talk to somebody and share knowledge there.
3: You know, I disagree that Mega Man's unfriendly, by the way, that's, this, that's the <laughs> game I actually wanted to bring up and I'll start with Mega Man two. Cause Mega Man one is unfriendly. I, I it has a lot of jank. I love Mega Man one. I think it's a great game, but I can understand why going back to it, it's it's pretty rough. Uh, Mega Man 2 is generally considered to be the starting point for Mega Man. And the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because I think it does a lot of things right. I think Mega Man 2 has the password system, correct? Yeah, yes. it does. Okay. So that's the first Mega Man that had a password system. Mega Man 1 did not. Now, generally, I don't care for passwords. I, I like the save system. But Mega Man 2 is a short enough game. And the password system is simple enough and it uses images as opposed to like a 32 character long <laughs> password system uh, that I, I think it's approachable. Now, the other thing is the other thing that compounds on this is the fact that this is a game, again, costing $40 in 1988 cash, which, whatever it is today, uh, a lot more than $40. This is a game that is going to have to last you a little bit. Now, this is a discussion we actually had about Shovel Knight in our server over there. on Discord is something that you find with 2D platformers is that the stage is just as much as the enemy as the final boss is for that stage. And that's something you don't see in really any other genre if it's a good 2D platformer. So for Mega Man, what you can do is you can go into these stages and you can fight the bosses and yeah, you might die a bunch of times. But the thing is, is that there's eight of them. You get to learn each one of these stages and each time you're going to get to the boss and each time you're going to be like, man, I couldn't beat that until you find one that you can beat and you're like, oh, wow, I got a new ability. So if you're playing through Mega Man 2, one of the very first ones you can do is Flash Man because Flash Man is really easy, especially here in the United States. And you go to Flash Man stage, you beat Flash Man, all of a sudden you can freeze time And now all of a sudden you're like, well, what can I do with this? You go to quick man stage because that's been kicking your ass and you don't know how to get through it because those beams are just harassing you. You don't know what to do. And finally you're like, oh, wow, I can finally make it through this. And there's these building blocks of reward systems that you start figuring out with the stages and how to make it past. The game doesn't tell you that every all these enemies have weaknesses, but they do give you a weapon, and these weapons can be used on other enemies. So you can figure out and infer that these weapons can be used on other bosses. At the same time, while you're figuring this all out, you can save your progress through the password system, so you can always come back later, no matter how frustrated you get. And then you can go to school and be like, "Hey, I beat Flashman." Now what do I do? And someone can be like, well, did you use the metal blade? And they're like, whoa, the metal blade. I'm supposed to beat, (laughs) I'm supposed to beat metal man. But by that point, by that point, because the stages are similar in difficulty between flash man and metal man, you can make it to metal man and start focusing on taking him down and then building your weapon set. So when you're looking at how all these things come together for this game at that time, and if you really want to review this game as it was in that time period, that's the way you have to approach this and engross yourself in it. Right. And if you're going to compare it contemporaneously, then it's okay. Go grab a guide and see what everyone was weak to. Go use your safe states. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not taking that away. I'm not saying you can't enjoy that game. But if you're saying is, I want to go to this game blind, blind and not use a guide, you have to take into consideration the way these games were meant to be played and experienced within the year that they're meant to be played, or else you're really giving that game a disservice. I think
2: I 100% agree with that. I think I, that's the way I approach everything, whether I'm playing something on Nintendo Switch Online or, you know, arcade archives or whatever. I have to do that. And it's not like I'm, Oh, I'm a purist. I'm not going to use save states. I'm going to really beat the game for real because I'm a real gamer or whatever. It's just that if I I feel like if I don't play it the way as much as intended, the way I as presented to me, then I like you said, I'm doing the game disservice. I feel like I'm not really playing the game. I saw one thing that really pissed me off. There was a review of some shmup that like a recently. I don't know if it was Glaylancer or something, right? Something they recently re released, and the reviewer was like, "Well." these bosses were too easy because i like you know you can just hit the save state or i just rewound a bunch and then i beat it <laughs> bro you're playing the game so in such like i just don't understand why people cannot just like you know that goes back to what we were saying about just you know playing the game in it's time if you're not willing to do that just don't review the game play the game however you want just don't tell me it's too easy because you cheated <laughs> like i don't that, i don't yeah. want to hear that
0: <laughs> that's that's, uh, even I, as the person who uses save states and stuff like that, even I would not come up here and try and say that one of those games is too easy because my fucking God powers let me just power <laughs> through the game. You know? Um, Mega Man 2 is a good example of a game that like I played, I did it for the Tales from the Way Backlog bonus series. It was my first time playing it. And on those, I am kind of like reviewing them. And I'm not really putting myself in that time uh, because I, I disagree that you absolutely have to 100% like soak in that historical context. I think I can review Mega Man 2 from a contemporary lens as a video game with the knowledge, of course, that they put in a password system because you couldn't just save wherever you wanted. They had to have like set things that you could save like states that you could save in. Right. Like I'm not going to complain about that because some of, some of these things, they had no choice. Some of the other examples we have on our notes doc here, like they didn't really have a choice. That was the way they had to do it. If they're going to make this game. So Mega Man two has some stuff that I consider to be pretty fucking cheap. And when reviewing a game, if I see something that I think is like, that is just a cheap roadblock, then I don't appreciate that. And I don't consider that to be good, regardless of historical context. I'm talking about the boss in Mega Man two, where you have to have the bombs and you have to have all of the bombs. Uh, If you have, you're missing two of them. You cannot beat the boss. So fuck you. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't grind outside the boss door because fuck you Mm -hmm. Uh, stuff like that. I'll look at that and be like, historical context be damned. That's cheap. That's that's bad. Uh stuff like that. But yeah. my overall takeaway on Mega Man 2 was that I thought that game was pretty good. I didn't like it that much, but I didn't come out of it saying it's a bad game, except for that one boss that I think is bad. And one uh one of the final boss stages is pretty shitty in that way too. But anyway, not to make this a Mega Man 2 uh Podcast, as we, we already say. made it a Mario
2: 3 podcast. I <laughs> mean, we may as well just... <laughs> <laughs>
0: to make this a podcast about an example that rick brought because i we've talked about a bunch of games that rick has not played uh, so um, I, I would like to love to get your perspective rick on this topic through an example that you thought about you know when when coming in here um, of a game you played you played some ps1 platformers for pixel project radio recently they surely have some outdated uh, or otherwise, you know, not great mechanics as you talked about on the show. What's your approach when you're doing those? Um
1: when I'm playing those those older games like on PS1 or Sega Saturn or whatever, I I mean I can see where you're coming from, Dave. I, I think you can review things through a contemporary lens. I just I think you need to be really mindful of the balance is, is all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, holding things to 2023, 2024 standards that were made in the late '90s or early 2000s just fundamentally doesn't work. It's like the reviewer that Dre brought up. You know, mm-hmm. this is too easy because I'm abusing uh, contemporary quality of life editions. Uh, Which, by the way, quality of life editions I often find are just ways to make to take the challenges away from certain games. But that's a, another topic yep. entirely. I agree, Espe- especially with JRPGs. <laughs> um, I, I'm I'm really of the mind of trying to play it as organically as possible. Uh Original hardware, if possible, that's certainly not possible for a lot of games or for a lot of people, but um doing it that way, doing it without save states, um, trying to think of examples that were prevalent of the time that are similar to, to what's going on to put it into some sort of context. I, I, I just, I think that's <laughs> really important. Um, Apologies for for getting distracted. My cat is being a little fucking demon. (laughs) Uh, um, Yeah, so I I, I really do try to stick to as close to the original experience as possible. I I really don't like, you know, emulating things on my big computer screen playing with a keyboard. That feels terrible. Absolutely awful. I, I don't like it. I don't like using the rewind feature either. You know, going back to that review that you brought up, Dre, I, I really don't. I use save states, of course, um, especially for games, you know, like Resident Evil 1, like Super Mario Brothers 3 that you can't just save. You know, some sometimes I've got to a- answer the door, you know, if the mailman's here. I can't <laughs> control for that. But outside of that, I, I really do try to stick to as, um, I don't want to say pure because that sounds ridiculous and pretentious, but as true to the... Um, original experience as intended. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I, I, think in, in some ways we owe it that we, we owe the games that, that much respect, at least.
2: I agree. I agree as well. I want to talk about a, cause we're t- we've been talking about modernization and, and Rick brought up the way we modernize JRPGs and stuff nowadays, which drive them crazy. And I, I agree with him. There's sometimes though modernizations that so completely miss the point that that drive me absolutely insane. So – and these didn't drive me insane, but we recently had a new 2D Mario and a new 2D Sonic, right? Sonic had unlimited lives. Okay, weird. Uh Mario Wonder had lives, but it also had no time limits, which I also found weird. So I'm like, what are we – like, what are we doing here? You know, what's our – like, what the hell is our philosophy to these nowadays, you know? And – There's one that drove me absolutely insane, and that was Super Monkey Ball Banana Mania, which came out a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And this is like – it's not a new Monkey Ball game per se. It just has like all the old levels from all the old games basically, which is good enough for me. But they really fucked it up in two major ways. One of them – and this is a lesser way – that the controls – are bad. I don't know if you guys have ever played Monkey Ball before, but it has like, they just took the arcade Monkey Ball, like the banana stick where you just kind of tilt the board, or at least that's the illusion of it. And the, and the monkey rolls on the ball. And then like the, the camera is right behind the ball. So you always can line up everything, you know? And they just converted that to the control stick exactly on GameCube when it came home as Super Monkey Ball. Right? So it was perfect. Super Monkey Ball Banana Blitz, however, doesn't do that anymore. The camera is more dynamic, which is to say shitty, because you can't line up. You know how that game is. You need to line up some very narrow pathways sometimes. If the camera's doing whatever it fucking wants to, good luck to you. You're just going to fall off. There's plenty of old levels where I'm like, I never used to fall off this thing. Why is this happening? And I figured (laughs) out that's the reason. And number two, and the more egregious thing about Banana Mania... The game has unlimited lives. This is awful because those old games, those monkey ball games were designed around having lives. That's what the bananas are for. You get 100 bananas, you get an extra life. If you have unlimited lives, what the hell is the point? Yeah, I mean, look, I get if you were making a new Monkey Ball game designed around this philosophy of not having lives anymore, but you can't just take the old old ones and take away the lives and then have it work because it doesn't work anymore. The risk reward is completely gone. Because you'd have, like, different paths or different situations where it's just like, okay, should I go for these bunch of bananas over here? I could get extra life, but if I fall off, that's risky because I only have two lives left and, you know, like, whatever. Like, you're weighing those options. All that shit's completely gone. It almost trivializes some of the level designs because it's like, why would I go for those bananas? They don't even do anything for me. Anymore. There was bonus levels, guys. There was bonus levels where you got a whole bunch of bananas and got like two or three <laughs> lives before you go to the, now they still have those. Why? It just, it, it was such a baffling decision. At least make it a toggle, right? At least like if you want to have unlimited lives, here you go. You can't turn it off. It's just it's just the game now that hmm. made me so incensed. I can't even tell you. And it and it sounded like I'm being, oh, you're against, you know, accessibility. I don't I don't consider like lives or difficulty accessibility. That's an entire another conversation. But I was just like, no, I'm not against it. Just don't ruin. I don't know, man. It just made me <laughs> insane, Dave. I I couldn't go this whole <laughs> podcast without talking about it. That's an attempt at modernization that made me absolutely crazy.
1: For what it's worth, I, I do agree with you about the lives and, and the time limit being inherent to the challenge and the enjoyment of the game. Like I, I, I do think that it gives you that risk and reward, the incentive to do I play risky or do I play it safe? I think that's really important. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, I a toggle is the perfect solution. It's the perfect accessibility option. Let mm-hmm. people play games the way they want to. Give us an easy mode. Let us turn on unlimited lives. Let us turn on or turn up the clock if we need more time i i think that's the perfect solution personally but you know uh, i mean some of uh, getting back to the quality of life things which is which is where i think that was coming from dre i i do think some of the the modernized uh, modernizations of games with the quality of life things do take away some of the inherent challenges Uh, the one that i always go back to is, is jrpgs taking away things like the need to grind or being able to, well, no, I I won't touch on that one, but like the need to grind. Everybody's always like, oh, there's great quality of life update. You don't need to grind. Do you just not like JRPGs? I mean, (laughs) there's there's nothing inherently bad about grinding. The the JRPG genre is a stat-based genre. It is not who can clear the level the fastest. It's not who can play the controls the best. It is how do you outstat your opponent whether it's a boss, mini boss, random encounter, whatever. Grinding is the easiest way to increase your stats to outstat the opponent, but it's also the most tedious way. There's also strategies, equipment, um, various level leveling up of your stats through abilities and things like that. Grinding is one of the easiest ways to do that. And yes, it, it is necessary in some, in some regards, but it is also the slowest. It's the safest option, right? So, I I it baffles me when people say, "Oh yeah, you don't need to grind. This is such a good JRPG. JRPGs should get rid of grinding." Like, no. No. No, you just that's just taking the challenge away from the game. I don't I, f- I fundamentally don't get it. Random encounters, yes, I can see that. I I don't mind that random encounters have have started to go the way of the dodo. That's fine. <laughs> it let me choose if I want to grind or not, you know. That's okay. Hmm. Um but yeah, I I a lot of these quality of life updates uh dre and and i don't know how chris and dave feel about this but a lot of the times i do feel like they're just you know uh, making gamers soft is what i want to say <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's that's total joke. total joke
3: i think those quality of life improvements for a lot of the the jrpgs you know you don't have to grind or you're invincible or all that kind of stuff that's i think those are more for people who just want to play the story again they're not really wanting to play uh, an RPG they're they're wanting to experience a story and whether or not we want to admit this I think a lot of us would a-, a lot of people just play these games for these stories and that's how they sell themselves especially a lot of the Final Fantasy games especially like when you hear people talk about Final Fantasy 9 I don't really hear a lot of people you know sing the praises of the gameplay it's oh this story really touched me so if I'm asking someone to go back and play some final fantasy nine and they've played it before. And maybe they're like, I just didn't get the story and I'm like, "Well, play the story. What's the best way they can do that. So in that sense, I can understand the quality of life improvements being attractive to someone who just wants to get through it and just experience all those things. It's not how I would play it. I don't, I don't like it uh, because I like JRPGs. I like the grind. I like to see numbers go higher. That's what draws me to that genre but i don't think that's the same for everyone who plays rpgs nowadays so i'm glad that you
1: I'm, I'm glad that you brought that example up because i'm playing through final fantasy 9 right now uh that's a game that i've played countless times i've got close to 200 hours on steam alone that's not counting switch ps1 ps2 whatever um and when i'm grinding when i'm doing anything that is not a boss battle uh i throw on the uh the 999 damage you know because i i've done this before Mm -hmm. i've had this experience so many times i know i can tell you how it works in my sleep so i'm just in it right now for the story and for the pivotal boss battles like that's when okay we're playing this by the books you know we're not going to fast forward through stories we're not going to fast forward through towns but i think the key there is to be able to turn it on and turn it off um when maybe quality of life was the wrong way to to go about saying this because that kind of implies the re-release of a game with updated features. Um, in that instance, yes, I'm glad that you can just turn them on and turn them off when you need them. Do I think that you're robbing yourself of an experience if you play Final Fantasy IX for the first time with all those on? Yes, I do. But that's your prerogative, right? Uh, something that I think about is Persona 5. Uh, the dungeon crawling in that, they at, at a certain point, you can effectively totally take away the need to grind because you can run into enemies with the cat bus and Mm -hmm. it just automatically wins and you get experience and points. And everybody, when I was playing that, I, I, I think I was in the discords at that time. Yeah, I was. Everybody was like, Oh, that's such a great feature. That's so amazing. Fantastic. And it's like, I don't know. It, it makes it feel like it's taking the experience away from me now to, to, to counterpoint myself. That game's long enough already. It's
0: goddamn long enough as it is. That was that was so, going to be the uh, counterpoint for Persona Five was by the time you get the ability to run over things with the cat bus, I had done eighty hours of the grind.
3: So. Yeah, and, and not to make this an exclusively JRPG podcast, we made this exclusively three different podcasts already. <laughs> but um, uh, they did this with Earthbound too. But I understand it because if if an enemy's super weak and you can aggro an enemy. And you're going to be in a system that that takes some time and you just automatically went in and get the experience. But the experience is usually like insignificant. It's just kind of like, oh, you ran into an enemy and it's it's over and you just win. Congratulations. It's not really going to have an impact on your leveling. It's usually you can only do this to weaker enemies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm looking more look what I look forward to with grinding or not look forward to. That's the wrong way of saying it. What I what I mean when I say grinding is good. First of all, I think grinding just provides a Zen experience. If you're playing a JRPG, that's just something that brings some Zen to me. That's not going to be for everybody. That That's me. It just, it comforts me. It brings me to that point that I could just walk around and just grind. The other thing is, I think we, again, this kind of goes back to how RPGs were in the olden days, back in the eighties for the NES and all that stuff like that. Grinding isn't something that I don't think was meant to be intentional. I think the reason that a lot of people view grinding as intentional as, is because they know where to go. And yeah. back in like the NES, SNES days, if you didn't know where to go, you're walking all over, you're trying to go to every town, talking to every NPC. If you're lost, you're, you're wandering all over that map you're just going to inherently gain levels you're going to inherently gain that experience so when people say i i don't i like the fact i don't have to grind anymore what they're really saying is that rpgs now are more streamlined and they are they're they're much more guiding you down a path they're much and i won't say like there's a difference in linearity because i think the linearity experience is still there it's just how it's presented and how how is how it is explained you really have to be able to interpret things a lot differently in an NES or SNES RPG as opposed, as opposed to like a, a PS2 RPG. I think Final Fantasy 10 did this, or at least I'm pretty sure 10 did this, where they have a red arrow telling you exactly where you need to go next.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: When you do that, you don't necessarily need to grind. And that's when grinding becomes deliberate and you're leveling up intentionally as opposed to just. Finding every location on the map, exploring the world, figuring it out, getting your ass pounded because you went outside the barrier a little too far and you ran into that gold golem that's you were not meant to fight yet, but you knew, ah, that's where I'm not supposed to go, but that's, that's how you did it. So the, the experience was different. Uh, you, would, you would just wander all over the place looking for something hidden. I know that's not going to appeal to everybody, mm-hmm. but that's just how games were. The The exploration element was there. And that also goes back to, hey, I'm at school. I, I've been looking all over for something for days. I'm really strong, but I, I can't find this item. So I'd be like, yeah, did you talk to so-and-so? Ah, oh, missed it. And then you go and you progress with the story. But that that's definitely something I don't think we're ever going to get back. And it's definitely something I didn't experience just because by the time I was into RPGs, guides were there and they were readily accessible. And I kind of wish I, I had that experience. Yeah, I didn't get into RPGs until,
2: like, I was a teenager. So I think the first one I seriously played was, like, Chrono Trigger or something. And by, like, 1995, like you said, there's guides and, like, it's a different world then. I didn't really play RPGs in the 80s because I was such an arcade person. I was not interested in that type of shit at all. So, you know, yeah, it's definitely different. I do want to say something real quick about random battles. is because I've never in my life understood why anyone would ever complain about them. Because I'm, at I'm. some point, you need to fight things. You need to fight them so you can kill the boss or do whatever else you need to do. If you need to kill stuff, what does it matter when they tell you to kill stuff? Or I walked up to this little thing representing an enemy and then I go to a battle screen. I just don't see what the difference is, in my opinion. Like, if you can, th- if anyone can tell me a game where like it really matters that this game doesn't have random battles or does have them, feel free to let me know. I just never understood why anybody complained about a system like that. You have to fight stuff at some point. So I don't know.
0: <laughs> There's a couple of parts to it. Like you may be talking about technology that needs needs to have random battles to introduce encounters to you because you can't have stuff running around on the overworld or you can't yeah. have a lot of stuff running around fucking Pokemon still trying to make their games work when doing <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> There is like a, like Earthbound has enemies that you can see and run away from and avoid those encounters. And sometimes you need to because those encounters can be really, really difficult, even in places where you're supposed to be. So the fact that they're not random encounters there and that you can see them and run away from them, I think, is like part of the strategy of playing Earthbound. I personally don't mind random encounters. That's like a very easy thing for me to play a game from like the early nineties and be like, of course there's random encounters. They can't have 30 fucking sprites running around on the, <laughs> the screen. And then you get to pick who you going to, who you want to fight. Like they can't do that. So I don't know. I, that's one of those, like Dre, you were talking about with Mario three. I was basically raised by games with random encounters. That's mm-hmm. part of my upbringing as someone who enjoys video games. They are as a part of, rpgs as anything uh to me so they don't really bother me uh if i'm playing final fantasy 9 and i can hit that no random encounters button because i just want to get to the next town then i'll do that sometimes but like i don't mind that they're there and that's an example of a an older you know style not a lot of games do random encounters these days uh modern modern JRPG, like throwback games, even like Chained Echoes and Sea of Stars, no random encounters, uh, the Yakuza RPGs, uh, turn-based RPGs, no random encounters, um, stuff like that. I guess, no, Persona doesn't have them. You can see the enemies in Persona 5 and stuff like, so like they're kind of one of these examples of, you know, things that are kind of, we'll say old-fashioned because newer games aren't really doing them. Uh, but this is something that's, Octopath has them. Fuck mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Octopath is still there for the uh, for the sickos. Yeah. So like, this is one of those where it's a lot easier for me. And I knew we were going to get to this as like a kind of takeaway in a lot of cases that it is case by case and person by person. Like what bothers you? What doesn't? What can you abide by? And what do you think sucks? Like maybe I come down harsher on a lot of things than the three of you. Uh, But that is the reason I invited you all on here instead of other people. So um, I needed people to balance me out. Uh, But random encounters are one of those things where I'm like, just doesn't bother me. I get why they're there. I don't really care. A game is not bad because it has random encounters. A game's not bad because it has grinding. I laughed earlier, Chris, when you were talking about like, you know the history of video game marketing and stuff, and they're like well, you can't make RPGs because no one likes RPGs. And I was like, the four <laughs> of us fucking love RPGs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> I was talking about the US yeah, in know, the nineties. Yeah, I, I laughed because yeah. I was like, everyone
0: in the room here's a giant JRPG sicko,
1: right?
2: Now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, those didn't exist when I was a kid. I just, yeah. I mean, there was just like Dragon Quest was for, dr- excuse me, Dragon Warrior was for fucking nerds. You know what I mean? We didn't, yeah. we didn't play that shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was too
3: slow and yeah. menus and. yeah
0: grinding is a thing it is an interesting one to think about because i don't i still don't really think of grinding as like an an old or outdated mechanic at all like pokemon has introduced a lot of stuff to eliminate some of the grinding that you need to do but you still need to grind in every pokemon game even the new ones the yakuza turn-based games have I would say forced sections where you need to just go chill and go fight in the arena for a while. Stuff like that. Uh, Persona 5, I did plenty of grinding in that game uh, and it helped out eventually that I could use the cat bus. So like, that's not an old quote, old thing. People are still doing that. There are games where it works. Um, I think that there are a lot of really well-tuned RPGs that give you a really tailored, challenging experience throughout without any need to go seek out extra stuff. Um, Chained Echoes, Sea of Stars, uh, both were like that. was the other one I was thinking of? Oh, like the, uh, the Larian RPGs, like you could go grind up in the old Baldur's Gate games, not JRPGs, but you could go grind up in Baldur's Gate three. You don't need to, and you can't, you actually can't once you kill something, it's dead forever. Uh, So, there are a lot of games that tailor that challenge a lot more um, than I think. I definitely agree with Chris that a lot of those older games, you were meant to be wandering around for a while and kind of inadvertently grind. uh, Whereas some of the newer games still feel like uh, you're on a linear path, but there are stops along the way where you're supposed to go chill and, and level up for a while, you know? Uh, and then there's another school of thought where they're like, we're going to tap. We're going to tailor the challenge every level of the way we know exactly how powerful you're going to be. So we're going to make this challenge. Sea of stars did that. Chained echoes does that. Yeah,
3: I, I think one criticism that I will levy, cause I have mentioned this already and we can, I mean, it's more in RPGs, but it's not specific to that genre. So I can just say games in general from that 32, 64 bit era, is games that re- almost require guides to get some of the better items or to experience the entirety of the game mm-hmm. because that was a marketing strategy back then is that you'd sell the game and then a supplementary, um, supplementary source of income would be selling the guide as well. And you, the internet wasn't big. Not everyone had the internet and these guides were often heavily marketed also in magazines and This is you need the Prima guide. You need the Brady guide in order to have the best strats and just having information that would be somewhat deliberately withheld from the player unless you were informed by these guides was total bullshit. And these are things that I I think are fair criticisms to be levied against these games during that era. Uh, Just off the top of my head, I'm going to use an RPG. But, like, getting Knights of the Round in Final Fantasy VII and figuring out how to breed a gold chocobo. I, I don't know who would be able to figure that out just naturally. I'm sure someone is going to listen to this and be like, well, I did! Like, well, fuck you. Uh, I don't know anyone else who, who really honestly could. And then figuring out that, like, the, the second-to-last boss in Final Fantasy VII, if you use Knights of the Round on that, the final boss will get an additional 75,000 hit points or something. And these are things you would not know at the playground. This is not some. This is not a pro strat. Hey, by the way, don't use that. Well, how are you going to know that unless your friend bought a guide? And I understand a lot of these game, things came from Nintendo Power back in the playground era, but also a lot of them came from personal experiences. Just how'd you beat it? Oh, I did this. And then trial and error. But yeah, there was also Nintendo Power strat, but I think it's because... These developers saw, or these publishers saw, what Nintendo Power is doing. How people are utilizing it. They're like, "Yeah, we can get in on this too." And fortunately, the the game facts of the world eroded that because then people just started getting it for free. And so developers were like, "You know what? I hate to say developers because I don't think they want, uh, want. I don't think they did it." But a lot of these uh, publishers were like, "You know what? Instead of hiding it behind some obscure wall, we're just going to make you pay for it." Yeah. So maybe it was. You're still paying for it in a way, but uh, maybe the guys at least came with something tangible. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um,
2: by the time Final Fantasy 7 was out, game FAQs was big enough where like there was tons of stuff to find on the internet at that time. But again, like you said, not everyone had the internet. Like we yep. did, but you know, it, it wasn't totally a thing. So yeah, I found out how to get Knights of the Round from the internet. Um, square's own website spoiled final fantasy seven for me i looked in their faq for help of this one part and they just spoiled the the big spoiler in the game they just said it there <laughs> what the hell are you guys doing this is before the game came out too i was just looking at like because you know i was like okay the, what am i gonna expect from the first you know so you know 12 hours of the game or whatever and it's like well now i know that that's great that's
0: that's <laughs> one thing you can expect yeah
2: yeah
3: here here you go but uh yeah they were I still agree with doing they were still doing shit like that up until final fantasy 12 i'm yeah. sure there's an example in 13 but you can't get the the best weapon in the game if you open up a treasure chest in like the second village you get to <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's ridiculous like what <laughs> who does that yeah chrono trigger burned me with a lot of shit like that too where chrono trigger has a lot of those where it's like don't open this chest the first time you find it wait till you visit it in the future then open the chest then go back in time then open it and it's like i see it look call me smooth brain i see a treasure chest i'm opening that oh yeah and so with (laughs) withholding that i think is an example of a trend that like i think it's pretty easy yeah you can look at the reason why they did it. it doesn't make me appreciate it one bit more
3: Oh, it's fair criticism. Yeah, absolutely. Fair criticism to be to be levied against it, uh, because if you are going in blind and you are putting yourself in that playground mentality that I mentioned, you're still going to get fucked. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, does anyone have any other uh, examples they want to bring up? Or we want to move into community thoughts. We can just kind of respond to these. Just
2: real quick, and I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but I do want to bring up like camera angles and camera systems real quick, because in the 90s when we were, when we were starting to explore that stuff, and I think most people know, I love the tank controls era of Resident Evil. Once we got to four, I'm like, I'm out. Don't want to play this anymore. Didn't like it. There's still tank controls, though. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, (laughs) behind the back, there's a lot of other problems with that game that I won't go into, but that in my opinion. But I love the original six. I call them the original six Resident Evil, the tank controls. And a lot of people said. Oh, you know, this is bad, you know, the detractors of that. But it wasn't just that. It was the cameras, you know, and obviously it's a pre-rendered game. You have to strike these angles in the PS1 Final Fantasies, a pre-rendered game. Also, you have to strike these angles. But then with the free movement stuff, I just wish people would like I'm trying to think of times where the camera has actually killed me in a game. And I think I can count those times on one hand. I never really understand when people say, oh, man, the camera got me killed in Mario 64. Like, I don't think I've ever played it, like, does it just, it just lurch in some direction all of a sudden, and then you're, like, dead? I understand, like, <laughs> sometimes it can get stuck in a wall, like, um, my friend Ven, he recently, a couple years ago, played Devil May Cry for the first time, and he hated this camera system because it was kind of free sometimes, then it was kind of Resident Evil, and, like, I'm totally used to that shit, and, you know, he's about as old as me, so he should be too, but he he hates that shit, you know. And then when we did like, um, Kingdom Hearts has like a notoriously bad camera. We played we had we played Kingdom Hearts three for the first time completely blind. We had never played a Kingdom Hearts before. It was an incredible podcast. Um, and he <laughs> was bitching about the camera, and I'm like, that's like number thirty seven on the list of things I think are wrong with this game, you know. So like, so I wanted to, I don't know, Rick or whoever, like, how do you? How do you deal with that? Like, I've just never been one of those people to complain about a camera, but like some people are. You just got dumb. You just did the Gex thing. Did that, did that camera fuck you at all? Or like,
1: (laughs) that, the camera in Gex 64 was the number one reason I had a bad time with that game, (laughs) actually. Um, and, and I think that is specific to the 64 version. I know on the PlayStation version, I think L1 and R1 is camera. That works. I mean, that's intuitive. With, um, with the 64, it's the C buttons. And even still, it, it's this weird kind of, it's dynamic, but it, it's trying to anticipate where you want it to go. And I, I never died outright, but I, I definitely failed a lot of platforming because of it. Um, the shoulder buttons on the N64, um, I don't remember what the left one does, but the right one is for eating flies, you know, so <laughs> I can't use that for camera. Um, yeah, no, I, I i I don't know that I have strong feelings about cameras, but it's definitely annoying whenever the camera's causing a problem. Yeah. Right. I don't want the camera to, to be a point of friction. Like it is, like it is in kingdom hearts Mm one. Oh, it definitely is. Um, I haven't played three yet, but in, in one. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you've got twin sticks and the camera is the shoulder buttons in an action (laughs) game. What? Uh, What are you talking about, dude?
0: This is a good example. We had it in the notes. I wanted to bring up Mario 64 as an example. This is, this is one of those like where, if you play Mario 64 now for the first time or if it's been a long time since you played it, uh, you might think that the camera is uh, rough. It's it's a really common criticism out there for the game. Um, I personally can't identify with that because Mario 64 is a big part of my childhood. I know how to use the camera. It's not a big deal for me. Uh, but this was a time when they're figuring out 3D cameras in like a fully 3D game 3d platformer move the camera around however you want they had to make a character so people would fucking understand what was happening yes (laughs) so that's one of those things where like i'm not sure how i would feel if i played it for the first time because i can't have that experience but it's definitely a point of like criticism for a lot of people with mario 64 or uh sounds like with gex and kingdom hearts and then with tank controls, that is something where I can think in my head, like, uh, Resident Evil 1, they're trying to figure out how to make a character move in 3D space, and this is what they came up with. And I can understand that. I still hate it. It still really affects my experience playing that game. Same with Tomb Raider, when I played that for the first time. Although Tomb Raider's an easier game than the first resident evil game i would say so yeah so it it didn't bother me as much because the game's just a little bit easier that's one where i can like take a step back and be like oh i understand what tank controls do and like they you know it adds to the challenge of navigating the mansion in resident evil one to have tank controls but you know when i played the remake uh for the gamecube i turned the tank controls off the second i saw the option to in the menus and i don't think it affected my uh experience adversely of playing the resident evil remake
2: i legitimately didn't even know you could do that i don't think i've ever tried to do that wow
0: yeah
3: okay i think you could turn them off in the n64 version of resident evil 2 as well
0: wow did not know so yeah tank controls are example another example of something where like if i'm like critiquing a game or something like i can recognize why tank controls are a thing and why they persisted throughout the series for several games even when they moved to 3d like with re4 Uh, tank controls didn't bother me in re4 because you're always pointing forward you have that quick turn and stuff like that didn't bother me in that game but that like this is to bring it back to like the greater topic the mario 64 camera or the tank controls or something where like especially the tank controls i can look at why they're there and understand the context at the time people are figuring out how to make 3d games doesn't really make me enjoy it anymore i'm not gonna like say that resident evil one is a bad game because it has tank controls but for me and my experience playing it it certainly didn't help
3: i think what dave said is is kind of my feeling on a lot of the way that the cameras work from that era I think that if you're a fan of games from that era, and you're trying to get someone else to play a game from that time period, and they're complaining about the camera, I think that's a completely valid complaint. That is going to be able to stop someone from getting into a game, because cameras have changed so much. And I think cameras struggled to really... Cameras still struggle to get it right in a lot of instances, but... Cameras really failed to get much right until almost midway through the PS2 era. Mm-hmm. I remember playing God of War on PS2 and the camera at times was terrible. And I think that's fixed. Yeah. A, it's fixed, a fixed camera. camera it's not game, a game. Free... Yeah. And there, there are times I'm like, I hate this camera. Same with God of War too. And so even that late, they were still having issues with, with the camera. And that's just something that 3D games had to grow into. And maybe they're still growing into in a lot of instances, but I, I think that's an example of where games are learning and, and just getting into a new environment. This is kind of comparing a game like E.T. on the Atari, which was rather ambitious. I know a lot of people like to shit on E.T. and say it was terrible – but that's just because a lot of people didn't know how to play it. You go back. Is it a great game? No, it's not. It's not as bad as everyone says it is. I'm not here to tell you ET is like is a hidden gem or some <laughs> shit. It's far from you it. Heard it here
0: first. <laughs> there you go.
3: But at the same time, like they were learning how to try to make a game more expansive and something more than just a simple arcade port or something like that. They're trying to do something different. And then you have a game like Pitfall. And Pitfall's not Super Mario Brothers, but they were learning how to scale from one screen to another, and Super Mario Brothers did that just much better. So what you have to, I think a lot of people have to understand if you're fans of this era and people are like, oh, uh, the camera, I just, I can't stand the fucking camera. I don't want to fight it. And sometimes it's not even that the camera is bad, but it's like I just said, it's fighting the camera mm-hmm. and trying to make sure it gets to where you want it to be. Even though the camera might be where it thinks it needs to be, it's not where you want it to be. People don't want to deal with that. They do not want to deal with that at all. And so if if you're looking back at that as, as a reviewer and, and someone who's trying to analyze these games, that does have to be something that I think you should communicate to the, the, the consumer of what you're trying to get out there is that this camera can be abrasive to your experience and it may be a deal breaker. That is a perspective you're going to have to accept because this is just something that Especially when games are getting into the 3D era, especially in those early games, developers just didn't know how to do 100% correct. And that's perfectly understandable you know what i find funny about mario 64 in particular
2: is that if you try to move it in a certain direction the game will just buzz you "Eh -eh," and then it's like why can't i do that you know a new person might think like why why can't i do that and it just like it's such it's such terrible feedback that it's hilarious now you know at the Mm. time i didn't think anything of it dave but like thinking back on it it's like why are you buzzing me i just want to move you said i could move the camera
0: I think that perspective is is good, the the idea that Chris threw out that like if you're in a position to evaluate a game there, you can have nuance in your critique of it. Like you can say Mario 64 and games of that era are figuring out how to do this in real time. It doesn't make it perfect, like the, I don't. I don't have a lot of trouble with the Mario 64 camera, but it is kind of annoying sometimes. Like you can mention that, and like the fact that they were learning in real time doesn't make it good, you know, objectively. But there is room for nuance, and to also say like it's not good because they're literally doing it for the first time. Like at, in in industry, you know, mm-hmm. someone had to be the first, and the first one's never going to be the best one. So there's room for both of those. The cameras are a really interesting example, I think. you guys say we get into these uh community thoughts here
2: let's do it let's do it putting on my pants right
0: now ready to go (laughs) so for the community thoughts for this discussion i put out the call whenever we do a roundtable discussion episode in the discord server for community members to give their two cents on the topic at hand and uh, we got quite a few responses for this topic here a lot of people with thoughts so i'll get us started Uh, With Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. Matt is a patron from uh, many, many, many podcasts, such as Fun and Games, Reignite, and Screen Snark, among other projects. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Matt says, this is so hard to quantify for me. I think the most basic way I can say it is I always go in with an open mind regardless of when the game was made. Uh, It's rarely a consideration because I try and meet games where they live, and also I've been gaming since the Atari 2600. Please don't do the math. I can't put myself in the shoes of someone who never played any classic games and lacks the context. That said, I played Final Fantasy IV for the first time in 2023. It was the Pixel remasters. There were improvements, but at the core, it was still that original game, and I loved it. I met it where it lives, and it's one of my all-time favorites now old games aren't inherently bad, but I could see how someone might now feel that way with no point of reference. Uh, and then Matt adds that said, anyone who plays chrono trigger, uh, nostalgia or not sees how incredible it is nine times out of 10. So who knows? (laughs) Hmm. I think, uh, I think Matt has a good point here that that point of reference, which we've all made a point to mention that like at least making the effort to give yourself that point of reference should be step one, I think. Now, however, f- however far that point of reference goes for you personally and your enjoyment, it sounds like it does more for the three of you than it usually does for me personally. I think it was Rick, you said that you at least owe this piece of art that. You owe it to at least consider that reference point.
3: This one's from Doug. Doug who is a patron from Nostalgium Arcanum, the podcast. And Doug says, that sounds so official, (laughs) I'm old enough that I can't play this game. The only games more retro than me are experimental things like Pong. It's weird to have that perspective on an entire medium. I'm practically there
2: with you. I'm not Pong old, (laughs) but I mean, like, you know, I was born in 82, so I've seen a lot of stuff, right? There ain't a whole lot that's older than me. Pac-Man, Galaxian. (laughs)
0: I think, uh, I think Doug added this as a joke in the, uh, server in the, uh, like the submissions here, but I did think that, that, that we're talking about video games here and video games are kind of a unique medium because it is possible or plausible that lots of people would want to join this discussion have been around for much of like the medium's history, like Doug says here. And so it's not like, you know, any of us, Wanting to watch a silent movie or something like that and really having to like dig for historical perspective, whereas like some people like Doug says, none of this is, you know, outdated in my opinion because it's all part of my experience, which is interesting for video games.
2: You know, I was actually when you you said silent movie, that's funny. I was thinking of film noir like what if you don't have the perspective of the 1940s or 50s or something like that or you're not even thinking about that i mean it's impossible cuz it's a black and white ass movie but uh, you you know what i'm trying to say like it just like you have to kind of you know with any art you kind of have to like put yourself there a little bit you know mhm
3: especially if the movies are are trying to make statements about society at large society changes over time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so if if part of that art is how they're making a statement on something and and how that is interpreted and how that's supposed to make the viewer feel in a movie. If you're not willing to put yourself in the shoes of a, as someone who's watching it in the year it was released, then yeah, you're doing a discredit to that, that piece of art.
0: Yeah. You can imagine like basically take, takes some of the attitude that I have towards some um, retro games and just apply that. Like, imagine me watching a Charlie Chaplin movie and being like, what the fuck is this?
3: This is, <laughs> <laughs> this is bullshit.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Why is no one talking? I don't fucking understand. No, like sorry.
2: <laughs> tap dancing. Who does that? That is yeah, so dumb.
0: Dramatizing yep. for effect, but uh, yeah,
1: uh, this next submission comes from Jake, who is a patron and is from the pre-order bonus podcast. Here's what they have to say. I make a big effort when playing older games for the first time to try to understand games in context. It's something I've done with classic movies, books as well, although I feel like the, quote, datedness of video games is usually more pronounced because games rely on interactivity and puzzle work more than other artistic mediums. Video game logic is a very real thing that has evolved alongside everything else, too, about video games. And I understand video game logic to mean coherent puzzle systems and player game expectations. It's kind of a meta-knowledge about playing video games. Uh, they go on to say this. A long preface to say that if I can't click with an older game's logic, then I'm more likely to put it down. I think in some genres that logic has evolved less, so when playing Earthbound or Star 64, Star Fox 64, excuse me, I've had a blast and they don't feel so dated. Although the save system on NSO is welcome because I can manage my time better. But Super Metroid, I cannot read the exploration logic of that game to save my life. Metroid Dread, I loved though, because it used more familiar and contemporary video game logic does it you have a you have a big note here after that first paragraph
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm sorry to interrupt i just like well one does it really do you guys can we address that real quick the super metroid really like i don't i don't
0: i don't know Uh, well metroid dread is a much more linear guided experience than super metroid is they're like super metroid you kind of have to poke at corners and bomb floors and stuff to find your way forward metroid dread is always just like
3: here's the next place really quick Metroid Fusion did that too and that game's over 20 yes it did
2: yeah, yeah it did yeah um but yeah i think what he was saying about like video game logic is very interesting because that's a good point to make because there's lots of stuff video game logic from back then that we just don't use anymore that I may know about that other people will not like so if Dave plays I don't know Power Blade for NES or Jer- Journey to Celius or something like that I'm going to know stuff Great and it's games. like oh this game is going to do this or whatever like I kind of just have that sixth sense about it whereas Dave might not or Rick might not Right. So, like, I just, yeah, that is something to keep in mind. And that's just one of those things, almost like Matt was saying too, where it's just almost impossible to separate yourself from because it's just something you're just going to have to acquire from being old, <laughs> for my better term. <laughs> I,
0: I talked about this on my Secret of Monkey Island episode, where that game and then uh, Resident Evil, which I talked about not that long after that, both of those games use a type of video game logic that games today don't really do uh, unless they're remakes of older games like resident evil two remake, like the idea of pixel hunting and combining items together and stuff like that. Like a lot of games don't really do that unless they're trying to invoke that specific thing from the past.
3: To be fair about secret of monkey islands and those games made by uh, Lucas Arce at the time. Yeah. I I think nobody really did, because there's a reason why they died, and a great success, which was Day of the Tentacle only sold 60,000 copies. So don't feel bad about that.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm, so, I'm surprised it even did that much, to be quite honest with
0: you.
3: It was a great success. <laughs> not to, If you love them, you love them. I'm not here to criticize your taste, but I'm just saying. Yeah. Right. Not Yeah, a lot of people had problems with them. Yeah.
2: So. Chimera from Game Over Hell on YouTube, great name by the way. He says, it's going to be a case by case basis for me. First, I try to think of the context in which a game came out when analyzing it or judging the game. It's impossible to detach being used to newer standards and improvements in design and technical advancements though so it makes sense to ultimately still condemn games for not feeling so great to play today for having UI problems targeting systems it feel clunky etc the biggest sources of frustration for me is tied to how games play how their hud and ui and menus work and look and look like and how slow or fast things respond And sometimes I'll even prefer how it was done in the past, and a good example of that is a decentralized camera a lot of modern games use. I actually prefer characters being in the center rather than being in the corners, unless it's a third-person shooter. Um, he says a number of things like random encounters are something I don't miss but also don't hate, exception being when they're super high like in Tales of Fantasia. Uh, graphics and sound are very minor cons for me. I can even have fun with Atari 2600 games, so it's only tongue-in-cheek if I make kind of N64 fog or muddy textures on PlayStation 1 or dancing wall textures, etc., Outdated aspects of games varies from game to game. If it's a game we played as a kid, it can fill our hearts with nostalgia and reminisce about the good times, and other times, they can be absolutely dreadful. I think outdated aspects of games don't bother us as much if the whole game holds up and is still fun to play. So, I have a couple thoughts. I agree with that last part. It's kind of what we were saying about the Mario 64 camera. You know, like, yeah, it's a little annoying sometimes, but whatever, right? It's Mario 64. Like, come on, right? Are you going to really <laughs> let that stop you? Cause I'm not, but I really, I don't want to say take issue. That's a little strong, but I really want to say something about he says at first, the he first he tries to think of the context when a game came out when analyzing it. But then the next sentence is it's, make sense to ultimately still condemn games for not feeling so great to play today. I think those two things are extremely contradictory. You can't say you're going to approach the game from the context of when it was made and then also say you're going to condemn it. That just doesn't make any sense. I'm not saying you have to excuse a game because it's old, you know, but if you're not willing to, it's like we said, if you're not willing to like at least understand why something is the way it is, I don't think you're actually doing the thing you're claiming you're doing in my opinion.
1: With respect to Disc Chimera, this is exactly what I mean when I say judging uh, older games through 2023 or 2024 lenses. Um it's just you know, it's it's not not always appropriate. I wonder I wonder if we're misinterpreting what DisChimera actually meant though. I, is is that a possibility? Like
0: the way that I read this was at the beginning, uh, like they said at the top, like try, they try and think of the context of when the game came out, which is what you know this because I think Disc chimera is coming at it with a pretty similar angle from me, where it's like when you start playing, you can try to understand the context. but if a game feels like shit to play, it feels like shit to play. and it's okay to condemn a game for that. And I do think that like we are not experiencing games in a vacuum. You know, you know, I pick up a game from nineteen ninety-one, I can't disregard that I played a game from twenty twenty three two weeks ago. Like, that's part of my experience now. So I do understand the like you can try to approach it with the context of when a game came out, but you're not playing that game in a vacuum. And that like that's what I think Disc Chimera said when they said it's impossible to detach from newer things and newer experiences that you have. I think the ideal would be to detach yourself from that, but I agree with them that it is impossible for me to detach from that. So if I'm playing Rocket Knight Adventures, I can't detach from the fact that Shovel Night was just as challenging, but way, way, way more friendly. So like, I don't experience things in a vacuum. I think that's what they're getting at. Okay. I mean, I
2: wasn't trying to be too harsh. I'm just saying that, you know, it just feels like, I don't know. If, if you're either, you're either in it to put yourself in the frame of mind. And if you're going to do that, I think you do have to look past some things. And if you're going to look at it in a modern context, obviously you're not going to do that. So I just think it's, I don't know. For me, it's almost impossible to be both. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just my mentality about
3: it. Speaking, speaking for myself here and trying to, put myself in the in the context of what Discomera is saying here. The, the first genre that comes immediately to mind to me is first-person shooters. If I go back and try to play a first-person shooter as it was originally released, like back when Doom came out in 1992, mm-hmm. the controls are going to be almost unrecognizable to a point where I am not having fun. If I go and try to play a first-person shooter on a console today... Um, I mean, back in like the PlayStation one, Saturn and 64 era, it's going to be very difficult for me to adjust in an age where we have dual sticks or WASD plus a mouse. And I think it's, it's easy to say that that control scheme just doesn't work as well as what it does today. And maybe that's what he means by condemning it. Cause I can look at those games and be like, wow, that is rough. I do not want to play a game this way. And I think you can do that because You can make mods that can optimize it the way you want to play it today. But if you're critiquing it as as, its original point of art, you can put yourself in that era and why they made that control scheme the way they did. But today, it it, it just doesn't it just doesn't fucking work. (laughs) So when I come from it from that perspective, I think it's fine to condemn those when control schemes change so radically. I think condemn is a very hard word, very harsh word. And I think that's a little too harsh, but I think it's perfectly okay to criticize something that just does not work from modern perspectives and use it as a way to like dock points, so to speak, when when analyzing a game.
0: Yeah, agreed. Another one that comes to mind is uh, what I've heard about modernizing the controls for GoldenEye and actually making it a good game making it a fun game
2: (laughs) i think yeah i remember i think rick was talking about this recently like just play it on pc and save yourself the the heartache (laughs) yeah
1: yeah it's an objectively better experience (laughs) on pc
0: yeah so i i get where disc chimera is coming from for sure um next uh is thrack friend of the show from the 3do experience podcast Thrax says outdated aspects of games uh, vary from game to game. If it's a game we played as a kid, it can fill our hearts with nostalgia and help us reminisce about the good times and other times they can be absolutely dreadful. Uh, I think outdated aspects of games don't bother us as much if the whole game holds up and is still fun to play. Yeah. Um, I think in this episode, we have focused on specific parts of games rather than whole games Uh, whereas like, I, I don't think that Mario three is a bad game. I don't like it because of the things we talked about. Uh, and I think that parts, I think that those specific things we talked about in my opinion are bad, but it doesn't make the whole thing bad. There's a lot of other things that are good about it. Uh, same with Mario 64. Like, I don't think someone could like, unless you just cannot handle the camera, which again, I cannot relate to at all. I don't think anyone's going to be like Mario 64 is trash. Like that would be ridiculous, I think to say, so I've seen it if the entire, if like the greater package holds up, then um, I think like Thrax said, some of those outdated aspects wouldn't bother you as much.
3: All right next is John from the Video Game Lounge podcast. See, I can say that one right. Uh, not so much design philosophy, but rather included content. I'm glad that we are past the 360 and PS3 days of every game having a piss-poor multiplayer component tacked on to them. Hmm.
1: You know what the first game that I thought of whenever I read this was Spec Ops the Line. Yeah, exactly. With that yeah. tacked-on multiplayer mode that completely yeah. betrays the entire point of the game and I yep. think the developers were even like actively trying to say no to it. Yeah. And the uh the the uh, the company was like, "Nope, we have to do this to make it sell." Yeah. yeah. They're like, "Well, fuck us."
0: And then it got dinged in reviews because it had a a mediocre yep. multiplayer when that's like so far from the point. I think this is a trend. That we can look to and be like, that was the style at the time. Like the very, the, the <laughs> yep. core of this yes. episode, that was Absolutely. the style at the time. And we can look at that and be like, yeah, I don't really give a shit if the multiplayer is bad because I don't care about the multiplayer and you probably can't play the spec ops, the line multiplayer anymore anyway. So that's what
2: people cared about though. I get yeah. why the publisher, I mean, yeah. I understand why they didn't want to put it in there, but I get why
3: they wanted to have it there. That was right. just, that was just yep. it. Yeah. The game that I thought of right off the bat was Mass Effect Three, and this is why. And I, I I'm kind of against reviewers when they're like the multiplayer is there, but you don't need to play it, but you're docking points off the main experience for it. If the main, if it's not the main selling point, like a Call of Duty, people are always playing that for the multiplayer. I think they need to be two separate reviews: what the campaign is and what the multiplayer is. And review sites started doing that. Mm-hmm. And if you care about reviews, but when it comes to Mass Effect Three, the multiplayer wasn't that great, and you're like, okay, I'll just avoid it. But the multiplayer actually had an impact on what was going on in your single player experience. Oh, no. And that's where I'm. That's where the tactile multiplayer kind of crosses the line. And that's where the criticism uh, and analysis, you can start interweaving the two. But I think that if you're going back to a lot of these games that are off servers, I mean, in a way, I'm happy we're past that era because that's development resources that could probably be, be put further into the single-player campaign which is great but I think if you you can go back and you don't have to worry about the multiplayer for a lot of these games anymore and you can just take it as a single-player experience uh, even with Mass Effect 3 nowadays because they they patched it out because they realized how much of an abomination and a mistake that was but that's <laughs> if that still existed and that was still the way to get the best ending of the game was playing their you know mid at best multiplayer experience then yeah you just... Free-for-all. Go after it. Like, hammer them.
2: I, I was thinking about this recently, though, since Naughty Dog canceled that Last of Us Online thing, like, in the last couple of weeks after this recording anyway. And it's funny how we don't have those modes anymore because it's now we're in the live service era. So we just mm-hmm. actually really don't have those kind of just tacked on multiplayer. I guess some game. I guess, I don't know. Some people might miss stuff like that where it's like – and I do kind of wish, like – Why can't they just release the last of it? Like, does it have to be this ongoing thing? Of course, the answer is yes, because capitalism. But like, can't we just like it is weird that we can't just release a multiplayer game now that was like those other modes where it's just like, here's a thing you can play and it's 30 bucks or whatever and go for it. No, now it's got to be this continuous monster. You know, it's weird.
0: Yeah. The Naughty Dog games in particular, like there are a lot of people who liked those Uncharted multiplayer modes and the last of us one, uh, whatever the fuck mercenaries or whatever it was called. I think think mercenaries Mercenaries resident Resident evil three. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So whatever, whatever it was like, there are a lot of people who liked it and it's just, it's just, I can't, I can't relate, but Mm. yeah, I am glad that those development resources, uh, are being put toward in a lot of cases being put in toward the, uh, the single player experience as opposed to, Yeah. Tacked on multiplayer because it was the style at the time. (laughs) (laughs) That it was. Artful Scruff has
1: this to say. They say, I think I generally agree with what's been said so far. I'd treat them on a case by case basis, and nostalgia can go a long way. I feel like if I was to play an old game for the first time these days, I might have little patience for the parts of it that have aged. On the other hand, I have a lot of love for Future Cop LAPD back on the (laughs) PS1. And when I revisited it on PSP, I found it to be nigh unplayable. So nostalgia is no guarantee that a game will still be enjoyable, at least for me. <laughs> That's, That's so always weird. the worst to go back to a game that you loved yeah. as a kid to, to discover that, oh, it's not so good. No yeah, more. <laughs>
2: we've all been there. Um, my, um, my first time I ever felt that way, and it wasn't even that long of a gap, was I don't know if you guys remember the PS1 fighting game Tobal Number 1. <laughs> yeah it had like akira toriyama designs and everything and i was i still am an akira toriyama freak so like i was like of course i'm playing this game my friend wanted to rent it for the final fantasy 7 demo i actually wanted to play double number one and i had a great time we rented that we played it all over the weekend i got another copy of that game like i want to say seven years later in like 2004 trash i have no <laughs> idea how i played that game man and i i like some really trash fighters sometimes and I was like, oh, my God, this sucks. And I'm like, OK, let's go to like the dungeon crawling mode. Maybe that's part that maybe that's the part I really liked. Nope. Oh, my God. <laughs> I really don't understand how I played that game so much and loved it. But, yeah, I think we all have our examples like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh The First time I went back and played GoldenEye 15 years later or whatever, I was like, oh, all right. (laughs) We're going back to Mario Kart.
2: I I never liked GoldenEye from the jump. I shouldn't say I didn't like it. I always just thought it was like, all right. So I didn't really have that reaction to it, but I'm sure I would if I loved it back in the day.
0: Mm.
2: So uh, Pie Boy says or submits rather – it really bothers me when age is used either as a shield against criticism or a cudgel to bash a game slash mechanic. Age has really no bearing on something's quality. I try to approach games for what they are without any preconception, so obviously that's impossible, so I can try and evaluate what's there in front of me. However, this doesn't mean I think history and context should be ignored. Understanding how the game was expected to be engaged with at the time, what games came before and after, those sorts of details can help to understand a game's goals. While I can never put myself in the time and place a game came out, I can try to keep in mind as I play, even if ultimately how it plays now is all I can really experience. I just bounced off the first Dragon Quest, he says. I read a bit around the context, the Western RPGs it was inspired by, looked through the manual. Doing all this, I can see why certain decisions were made and how it could have been compelling at the time. None of this stops me from criticizing many of those decisions as bad game design or makes me enjoy it anymore, especially when you consider games like Final Fantasy came out in the years after and made big improvements to the formula in my opinion. He goes on to say, understanding historical context can also work the opposite way. When an old game still holds up today, the fact that they managed to make something genuinely great in a time when fewer principles of game design were widely understood on very basic hardware becomes even more special. I was shocked playing Castlevania for the first time last year and discovering it's a brilliant game with a solid grasp of level and encounter design. Learning how much of a pioneer it was just makes just makes it stand all the taller to sum up. I think it's important and valuable to take the history of a game into account, but that shouldn't override any feelings you have playing it today.
0: That's a lot. You got the long ones. That's a lot. ones. I, I just want to point out, uh, that I love the first bullet point here that pie boy sent when they said, uh, it really bothers me when age is used either as a shield against criticism or as a cudgel to bash a game uh, to either say that it's okay because it's old or that it's bad because it's old is reductive in both scenarios. And like I, part of the reason we wanted to do, I wanted to do this topic is because we can't just say that we have to dig a little bit deeper. So I agree with that for sure.
3: I, I agree with that on, on a principle as well, but I, I disagree that age has no bearing on certain aspects of something's quality. Graphics aging are a thing. Graphics, like that is, that is a real thing, or, or sound quality, now, you might prefer that, but these, these are real things that are limitations that existed in the way they've aged looks different. pre render ga- graphics are something I don't think has, quote, aged very well. Uh, specifically on 32-bit consoles and when they're put in 3D environments. I don't think it looks that good, but developers at the time thought it was an aesthetic choice that they liked, and there are probably still people out there that really like that aesthetic choice. But (laughs) when you look at the resolution and how it's presented, I, I think it's because of the limitations of the era and what they wanted to do with how they visioned it. And now in modern times, it really hasn't aged as well as it possibly could have. And this is even when you take old models, and even if you try to replicate it, like in Signalis, that game that we played together, those models, even though they're very reminiscent of a PS1 game or a Saturn game, they could not be duplicated on those systems because that age has affected the quality over time of what what you expect to see and what you would deem good quality. Mm -hmm. So I do think aging does have its place in certain elements of games. I, I agree with what you said. I, th- I want
2: to take it a little bit different direction though, because I take issue with a couple things he said here. One of them being when fewer principles of game design were widely understood on very basic hardware. Maybe I'm reading this wrong. That feels a little bit like the they didn't know any better. Kind of thing sometimes people say about old games, which I almost always disagree with. I think all these things are largely a choice in these old games and not just because, well, they're just doing, they're just experimenting. Sometimes that is the case. Don't get me wrong. But I think like nine times out of 10, it's not. They knew what they were doing. So I just don't, I don't know. Maybe am I crazy? I'm kind of reading it the wrong way, maybe, but I just kind of feel like it's a little bit of that, which I generally always disagree with. Dave, that's how I read it too and i and yeah. I agree with you,
3: I think Dragon Quest is a very well designed game mm-hmm. It might have mechanics that we're not used to anymore, but i I'm reading your comments. I mean you wrote this I no, ahead borrowing go ahead. A lot yeah, go ahead uh but it it kind of has my perspective on this as well, whereas Dragon Quest was designed to be wizardry for newbies mm-hmm. It was meant to be the experience for everybody again kids multimedia experience just adults got into it too because it was simpler it wasn't as as stressful those old pc rpgs wizardry ultima uh xanadu they kicked your ass and revelled in it oh yeah they laughed at you while you died dragon quest was hey don't like dying as much we we got this for you this is this is the easier simpler way to play it while still giving you the true PC RPG experience. It's just, you know, a a little bit more accessible, a lot more accessible. So enjoy. And that's what Dragon Quest was. And it did it brilliantly, I thought. And it's I think it's a masterclass in in, an introductory RPG. I 100% agree with you, and I don't know what mechanics
2: he's talking about in Dragon Quest, but if if it's like a lot of people complain about the system where you bring up the menu and you have stuff like talk or look or stares or whatever search, and I just think it's like you said, it's an update and a in a simplification of the stuff that was going on on PC. I'm I mentioned PC eighty eight earlier. I am playing Xanadu. On, on, on one of those eight console releases right now. So like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going through it. You know, <laughs> it's like, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. And something like Dragon Quest is like so much easier than all that. And that was the point of it. And you have to have that context. I really do think you just can't go back and play a game like that without keeping that in mind. I just think it's really unfair if you don't.
0: I think to the comment about like a time quote, a time when fewer principles of game design were widely understood on basic hardware. I get that. Like, it's not to say that they're just doing what the fuck ever because in like with no thought behind it, it, but there are games and I can't speak to Castlevania. I guess pie boys using Castlevania as a good example of like a time when people are figuring it out More so than it feels like they are now in a lot of, you know, modern games, like people are trying new things, experimenting, but there's a lot that's been standardized at this point. Whereas like back then, there were a lot more new things that people were trying and Castlevania is a good example here, but I bet there are lots of other examples where people are like, hey, let's try this weird idea we have and it ends up sucking like, I think that that's kind of like what they're setting up and then putting Castlevania as a good example there where like they didn't have a lot to work with, but it's a rock solid game that they made. Yeah, I, I I can
2: get down with that. Yeah, it just felt like a little. Yeah, you did experiment back then. Well, you know, I like I said, I'm playing Xanadu right now on PC 88. And it's just like you see, I just love seeing the history of it you can see it and nobody has to be told you can see all the games in the future that this inspired and what it what it came from its inspirations and i love that and again you don't always have to have those contexts to enjoy something or that they should be necessary but like i just don't think it was as loosey-goosey as 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 probably intended if that's what he was trying to say so
0: we did the episode last year on the show where it was a discussion about whether video games need to be fun. And one of the guests, I think it was Ryan, talked about how they enjoy playing games Like from that historian's perspective, where it, it almost doesn't matter whether they enjoy the act of playing the game. The act of seeing the game and seeing the inspirations that you can then connect to things in the future is that that's the enjoyment of playing that. And it sounds like you're getting a lot of that from Xanadu.
2: Yes, I am. And and highlight like I mentioned earlier, absolutely, because
0: yeah. I'm such a east
2: person. So it was such a it was so Love wild us. for me to like see that, you know, mm-hmm. cuz I'd never played that game. I'm like, "Holy shit, this is incredible on that level," you know? So, yeah. I yes, I enjoyed it.
0: All right. We've got two more uh of the community submissions. Uh the first one is from Alex from the First 5 channel on YouTube. Thank you for writing in Alex. Alex says, uh, I've been struggling so hard to work my way through star Wars Knights of the old Republic. I've tried playing it like four times in the past because it's such a classic and I failed every time, but a big podcast started a run through of it. So I decided, Hey, maybe this will be what finally gets me to finish it. Nope. Three months later, I still haven't made it off terrace and that podcast is already almost done with the game. um, (laughs) Alex says the culprit is the combat. Most of my energy is spent wrestling against the UI to accomplish this simple task. Ostensibly I'm supposed to be fighting the black Volcars, but all I'm fighting is the UI. The final nail for me is just how much of this I have to do. Combat. That is KOTOR is mostly renowned for its storytelling, but there's so achingly little of it compared to this awful combat in true ancient RPG fashion. You spend an hour waiting through repetitive encounters just to get to a five minute conversation that actually advances the plot. Then it's back to waiting through another hour of combat. If I'm here primarily for a good story, that's a terrible use of my time. I'm still banging my head against it little by little, but I doubt I'll actually finish it. Um, I Ooh. can't really relate to that with KOTOR. Uh, I don't. Maybe it's because I played this game a long time ago and I just have that experience with it. Um, I think the UI is pretty simplified in that game, but, uh, this was a very early like attempt to move that type of RPG off of PCs and onto consoles, uh, the Baldur's Gate type of RPG. So I get like, it's almost, it was almost too simplified. I think we talked about that on retro hangover, Chris, about how yeah. KOTOR is very simplified compared to the stuff that directly preceded it um yes so but i get like if you're having trouble with stuff like ui or like it is a dated style of combat like not a lot of even new rpgs do combat like kotor does if you're not able to get down with that then you're gonna have a hard time and kotor has a notoriously slow start so you'll make it off terrace one of these days alex and it does get better
3: (laughs) it does I think just to briefly inter- interject, I'll try to be as brief as possible here. Um, this goes back to kind of Dischimer's comment about condemning aspects of a game that don't really fit into today's gameplay style. If like KotOR, it's it has its its clunkiness. It definitely does. That's not in line with a lot of stuff today. And the stuff that there are combat systems that are similar that do it much better today. So going back to it it's going to be clunky and it's still trying to accomplish the same thing. And it still goes to the aging thing. Like there's a, there's a lot of novel ideas that were still coming out and try and trying to get the D and D formula and mechanics into a video game and being properly representative. And they've, they figured it out a lot better since then. So I, I, going back to those two previous comments, I think that really could apply to KOTOR and I understand what they're talking about.
2: I am a notorious Bioware hater so I totally like, I just, I just can't do it. I've tried Jade Empire. I was miserable. I tried like the first Mass Effect. I was, mis- I just, it's just not for me. Right. So I, I do understand what he's talking about. I have not played Kotor, but I, I totally get the janky stuff. Like memories of Jade Empire just came flooding back to my, <laughs> to my head while I was just, so yeah, I, I understand him just cause I don't like those kind of
3: games. So I'm unable <laughs> to evaluate them, but I get what he's saying. Mm-hmm. All right, next is Adam from the Revival and Extinction podcast, and Adam says, "Mine may be a bit of a unique experience, but over 2023, I played the Super Nintendo versions of the first 3 Dragon Quests. They were definitely experiences throughout this that just screamed late 80 early 90 JRPG with this mechanics, such as being only able to save on the world map, fast travel costing magic," having to pay at an end to heal, ever-increasing and often frustrating experience point curves to level up with slow battle and forced grinding mechanics. What helped me progress was the charm of the story. I had no experience with the series prior to this year, and playing it the way I did, not on original hardware. The only extra function I used was speed-up, but this turned an abhorrent mechanic of grinding into a backwards brain secondary task which ended up being quite a cathartic exercise, which I look forward to in my playthroughs.
1: Oh boy. Yeah, it comes down to let people enjoy the games how they want to. Um mm-hmm. I have not played the original three dragon quests. I just knowing my own proclivities, I don't think that I would agree with Adam, but those options are there for him, and it's what got him to enjoy the game. So good on you, man. Um that's abhorrent mechanic
2: yeah, yeah I, I don't know yeah i just strong. Can't. yeah i'm just i'm strong think, yeah very strong I think <laughs> we're all rpg people so i think we're all just like what i just can't i can't relate man i can't yeah. but i, I'll, I get you but I'll I'll
3: i can't. agree to disagree yeah uh, but I hate Dragon Quest too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: sometimes I, <laughs> sometimes I get to a point in a, in an RPG like that where it's very very clearly a point where I need to grind or something. And I'm like, ah, I I don't want to grind right now. But you know what I do? I put on a basketball game and I grind while I'm watching basketball, and it's all good. It, it be like Adam said, a secondary brain task which grinding can really turn into. It's me watching like. Basically an entire NBA playoff series while beating up dinosaurs in the forest in Final Fantasy VI.
2: <laughs> it's like, yeah, sure, I'll watch the uh, you know, two thousand nine uh, you know, AL Central tiebreaker game again or something while <laughs> I uh while I do this. Yes, I have done exactly.
0: that. So that is all of our community submissions for this episode. I'd like to thank everyone who took the time to write in with your thoughts. Much appreciated. As always, lots of uh, smart people hanging out over in the tube discord server. Uh, So this will be the plug for this episode. If you would like to take part in future discussion episodes like this and also be a part of a uh, community full of cool people, everyone's wearing sunglasses. It's a very cool place. Uh, You can join (laughs) the discord server. There's an invite link down in the show notes. Uh, so to wrap up this episode, I think we can just kind of give some final thoughts on the topic after the, uh, the discussion that we had and then hearing the community submissions here. So, uh, Andre, you wrote something in the notes. So I'm going to kick to you first to give the rest of us a chance to collect our thoughts. <laughs> All right. Well, I think Matt,
2: they said it best where meet the game where it's at. I just think that's the most fair thing to do. And I think it's, I was going to say irresponsible if you don't, but I mean, that sounds a little strong, but I think you get <laughs> what I mean. I just, I just really think that's the fairest thing to do. Just play the game on its terms, not the, not the terms of today or the expectations of today, but the terms of the time in which it was made the best you can, because I believe that's the only way only fair way to approach anything, whether it's from 1984 or 2024, you know, instead, like, try your best. If you're one of those people who get annoyed by this old system and that old system, try your best to not ask why isn't the game doing this or that, but ask yourself why it's doing the things it is doing. Okay, why did they only give you three continues? Right. Sometimes it is because they're dicks. Right. Sometimes that is the answer. (laughs) But sometimes it's not. You know, there's a reason why you can't continue in Star Fox or Panzer Dragoon or like most rail shooters. Right. There's a reason why. So, like, kind of ask yourself, why is the game designed this way instead of being frustrated at it? And, you know, it's fine to be frustrated, but. Play the try to play the game on its terms instead of your terms. And I feel like you will come away with a much better. Maybe you still won't like the game, but you'll come away with a much better understanding of things.
1: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I really do. Uh, meeting a game where it's at is is critically important. You can't go into an experience expecting one thing and then getting upset when you don't get that if the experience is completely different. I will say I, I think it's important to play a game. I think there is a balance to be struck. I think you should play a game on your own terms. uh, If that's using save states, for example, on a Nintendo Switch Online subscription, Uh, if that's the tipping point for you and without them you're not going to play it, well, I mean, make the decision. Don't play it or use save states. And that's fine. Um, But the, the responsibility of looking through 2024 goggles into a 1999 game, you need to use it. You need to use it with caution because then what happens is you play Metroid and you, and you say, well, I, I'm just backtracking all the time. This sucks. It's like, <laughs> well, you, well, yeah, that's you're not meeting the game on its own terms. Um, that's that's largely where I lie. That's where I still lie. Yeah, I don't I don't think I have much more to add that hasn't already been said by one of us or one of the contributors, to be
3: honest. Mm-hmm. I hate Metroid. Yeah. <laughs> i think it's a bad game uh but i think and you there's... say that
1: in front of a known metroidvania lover Andre.
3: <sighs> oh my god you just i physically cringed
2: did you see that oh my god i literally recoiled from that
0: uh you you activate his his activation phrase right there his eyes turned red
3: <laughs> yeah i was gonna say <laughs> <laughs> sorry well, I, I do love metroidvanias sorry, i just hate metroid but i think that i think what i'm trying to say here is People are going to like what they're going to like and whether or not you want to have the context or not, because not everyone has to go into a game expecting to have the context. That's not something everyone is going to want to do. Sometimes people are just going to sit down and they're going to play and play a game and maybe because that game was recommended to them by a friend because that friend really likes that game or they just stumbled upon it and have heard a bunch of noise about how old games were better back in the day. Sometimes that means you're going to find something you really enjoy. Sometimes you aren't. Sometimes that's because mechanics that were at that time that were used were were mechanics that you're not used to and you just can't wrap your head around. And sometimes something is just going to gel with you no matter when that game came out. I love Galaga. Galaga was released before I was born. That game was not made for me or my gaming tastes, but it's something I gravitated to. I hate Metroid, but I love Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Uh, Usually those things that that's a contradictory statement towards a lot of players. Why? I just can't get along with Metroid and what it was doing at the time. But then I can sit here and tell you and just wax poetic about how amazing Mega Man 2 and Castlevania are. So not everything is going to just ring with everybody and I think that's the brilliance of gaming whether that be today whether that be from the NES or whether it be in any piece of art or media it's just something we all kind of have to accept and any criticism is really valid uh, and you can make that criticism while also recognizing of what advances these pieces of media what these pieces of gaming did at the time it doesn't mean you have to like it. So if you go back and you play something and you don't like it, that's fine. If you love it, that's great. But keep the always keep the discussion open, always be willing to listen, and try to understand why that game might be important or enjoyable to somebody else. And provide your own context in how that game might inform some of the games you love today, especially if it's within the same genre. This is something we all share, this is something we can all love, and this is something that we can all communicate about and and build and, and grow and help this art form grow as well. So that's where I'll leave it there. Uh and just enjoy the games the way you want to enjoy them. Amen. Um I think that for me personally,
0: like the the takeaway and like I think a lot of us came into this episode and then came out with basically the same ideas, but you know, we got into some good discussion along the way there uh with our examples and community submissions. Like I I still obviously the value of putting yourself in like the historical context or at least trying to understand it going in. This is actually like I'll say this. If you are just playing a game and just playing it, seeing if you like it or not, I don't really think that you need to go read about the historical context or ask somebody about it. If you're just someone playing a game, seeing if you like it or not. If you are going to evaluate a game and put out a podcast or make a YouTube video or write a review or something like that, then I do think you do have a bit of responsibility to try and understand a little bit of historical context in that way. So I still think that it's okay to have that historical context and then go on to criticize things in those games, uh, even if the historical context makes sense. It doesn't mean that it's good. Uh, It just means you know the historical context for it. I think that's where I'm coming out of it. But at the same time, sometimes that context is valuable and will kind of take the edge off of some of those things. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it will. Uh, So I think that I agree with what everyone has basically said here, that uh, that is important to try and put yourself in that time to understand uh, if the purpose of what you're doing is evaluating something. Uh, You would not, again, that Charlie Chaplin example, you would, if you're going to review a movie like that, you would need to understand why things were the way they were. Mm -hmm. Uh, You wouldn't just go into that completely blind and then wonder why no one's talking. So, yeah, this -hmm. has been a, a fun discussion here. And... We went longer than I thought we would, but should not have been a surprise to me. Number one, it's this show, uh, as Chris said before we started recording, but also uh, having three people with uh, great opinions and stuff with me here uh, leads to good discussion that we don't want to end, or at least I don't want to. I don't want to put words in your mouths. I hated it. (laughs) As people uh, with good opinions, you all happen to have your own projects that you work on podcasts and stuff like that so it is time for plugs rick i will kick to you first to tell the people about pixel project radio and uh, what's been going on on the show lately of course
1: uh so as dave said i'm i'm the host of pixel project radio it's a video game discussions podcast we uh, analyze games we play through them and do story beat analysis Uh, occasionally do topic episodes that are related to games such as difficulty or you know, a specific com- composer's music. Uh, lately, we just finished up a big three part series on lost odyssey uh, as well as covered Gex 64, which <laughs> was a time and a half. Uh, and we're moving into 2024 bright eyed and bushy tailed. And uh, if you want to check us out, we're available wherever you get your shows uh, on all of the standard socials, except for Facebook. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. We have uh, everybody on this panel has been on the show, At least once, uh, except for Dre, who is scheduled uh, for for 2024. (laughs) So there's no shortage of of these folks with with good opinions, as Dave said, if you want more of them too.
0: Awesome. And uh, Andre, tell the people about Fine Time. Oh man, just a little thing I do. Fine
2: time. It's a good old video game podcast I do it with my two friends, Steve and Kevin. The three of us just sit around and talk shit. Whatever we're playing, that's what we're talking about. Whether it could be something brand new like Spider Man Two, it could be something very old like Hide for PC eighty eight. You know, <laughs> like whatever, whatever we're into at that moment, that's what we're going to talk about. And you know, we we cover industry stuff. We love. Oh my god, we can't wait to talk about these Insomniac. Holy shit. we were going to dig into that. We love talking about industry stuff like that or, you know, sort of deeper topics about um, just video games. And then we we love quiz games, too. Like, I don't know shit about Pokemon, right? Steve loves to play Pokemon real or fake with me. He has a list of Pokemon. He could have made it up. They could be real. And I have to guess, real or fake? Well, Kevin just sits there and laughs at me for 20 minutes. It's real good. I promise. It's good radio. It's not radio, but it's a <laughs> podcast. Um but yeah, that's fine time. We, I mean, very occasionally we'll cover a movie or an anime or music. Sometimes we just kind of keep it open that way. But for the like nine times out of 10, we're talking about video games and it's real fun. So I don't know. Fine time podcast on Twitter. Uh, Go ahead and find us there. That's our main feed. And uh, hope you join us for a fine time. Gotta say it. He said the
0: thing. All right, we can <laughs> move on to Chris to uh, tell the people about retro hangover.
3: Yes, I'm part of the Retro Hangover Podcast, as you have already heard. Uh, what we do, me and my host Shane—I guess I'm the co-host over there. He—he he really does all the hard work. We have a podcast about old video games, old retro video games, where we take a game 10 years or older and we discuss it and we break it down in terms of our personal experiences, the plot, the story, the graphics, the audio, the gameplay. We break that all down and then we discuss whether or not that game holds up today. So much of the similar vein of this conversation. Right now we have an event going on over at our Patreon. It will be out to the main feed in a few months but right now it's over on our patreons called the king of games 96 you can find dave over there where we pit a bunch of games together from the year 1996 to determine which game overall is the most important or best or however you want to term it uh, we all do that. There's chaos that ensues and we make a bunch of people angry, make a bunch of hot takes, but you're going to have to go over to there, figure that out or just wait a few more months and it'll be available to everybody. But I think that would be something that you would enjoy over there on our show and it has a bunch of different podcasts as well. Not just Dave, a bunch of familiar faces and it's, it's a great time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, go check us out at Retro Hangover at our link tree, uh, linktr.ee slash retro hangover.
0: Awesome. And uh yeah, it too much uh quality out there for a lot of individualized praise right now, but I'll I'll just say everyone should go check out Pixel Project Radio, check out Fine Time, check out Retro Hangover. Uh that King of Games 96 series was a great time. I'm looking forward to uh the reactions to how that went. <laughs> so, um you'll find links down in the show notes for all of those podcasts highly recommended. There's a reason that I invited these folks on the show to talk about this today. Uh, And I have been on Pixel Project Radio a few times. I've been on Retro Hangover a few times outside of that King of Games series. If you're looking for an easy in, if you can't live without me, seek help, but also seek out those (laughs) guest appearances that I did too. For this show, Real quick plugs uh, at the end. I already plugged the Discord server. Uh, leaving ratings and reviews is really helpful in case somebody searches exactly what the title of this episode is. I don't even know what it is yet. But in case they search it, it'll get bumped up the algorithm. And if you want to support monetarily, patreon.com slash Dave Jackson. Always appreciated. And uh, yeah, with that being said, we will sign off. It's been a while. So thank you, Rick. Thank you, Dre. Thank you, Chris, for joining me. And thank you everybody for listening. Tune in next week for the next game to come out of the backlog.